all your podcasting stuff over there? Yes, it is. Has it ever been used? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, I use it a lot more for Zoom calls and different things like that. Okay. You were going to start a podcast, right? Yep. The Craft Cider Podcast. Craft Cider Podcast. Was yeah. it ever born? We still have the website and the Facebook and Instagram, but we've never fully launched it. Why not? Time. It's the thing, man, right? Yep. Yeah. Julia was actually, when I first started the podcast, she was like, are you sure you have enough time for this? I'm like, oh, definitely. Yeah. But not real, realizing how much time actually goes into editing, preparation, the actual tracking down people to record, etc. So I could see how it would be a total time burn for you. Yeah. And that was the hope is that we could do it in the slow season and hit it like, you know, January, February. But the year after year, our season just gets longer and longer and longer. Yeah. Were so. you going to talk about your cider or just cider in general? We were going to talk about cider in general. Uh, the idea of the podcast was going to be to educate consumers on where their apples are coming from, different growing qualities, different growing regions, but also the differences in uh, the way different cider makers view production of hard cider. Oh, Far from traditional to modern American way to some funky stuff that's starting to get out there now there's just a lot of different types of styles of making cider and it was to bring a little more of awareness to the cider industry kind of like the beer industry has you know in the beer industry there's so many categories but when you talk cider everyone's just like oh like angry orchard it's like no 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 there's so much more than just angry orchard how do they make it they're more mainstream a lot of the larger producers tend to produce out of concentrates and so they'll bring in concentrates, constitute it, they'll ferment it, and then they'll back sweeten it with concentrates. That's got to be the cheapest way, I'm guessing, It's at least laborious. It's the cheapest way, and it also covers up bad winemaking just to add a bunch of sugar to it. It's kind of like bad brewing where you just add a shit ton of hops. Yeah. And you're like, oh, this, oh now it's a, we're going to make Hop another devil. IPA. Yeah. <laughs> and so. Wait, is that why brewers, all of them make IPAs just because it's easy to cover? I don't know if that's why they do it, but I know that there are, you can really find a good brewer by the lighter styles or the maltier styles of beer that they produce. IPAs typically are going to shock the palate and there are there is a difference in quality of levels of ipas that are better than others for sure um but a pretty mediocre person can make a decent ipa just because it's covered oh that's interesting so when you go to a craft brewery do you try their lager first to be like let's see what this person has always yeah that's an interesting they have a pilsner a lager uh anything like that if they can make a really clean beer then my expectation of everything else immediately is elevated that's really interesting because a lot of times, you know, the craft beer has exploded and there's a brewery on every block now in every city. But a lot of times, yeah, I don't like the entry level beer. So then I'll go to the IPA and I'll be like, oh, this is good. But I never thought of it that way of like, oh, they're just covering their tracks. Not yeah. to say everyone's doing that, but I never thought of it that way. Like hops as a the great equalizer, so to speak. Yeah. And it's, it's just like sugar and hard cider or sugar and wine. When you have anywhere from, you know, once you get over a range of like 27 grams of sugar per 12-ounce container, you've shocked the palate to where you're only tasting the sweetness. So from there, add whatever flavor you want. Take sugar, add pineapple flavoring, and now it's a super sweet pineapple. And there wasn't a lot of craft that went into producing that. It was just kind of more of like a chemistry project. Whereas what we do more here is everything's produced with fresh fruit. So we start with the whole fruit in mind. And 
we don't use artificial flavors. We don't use natural flavors. We use juices to back sweeten our ciders to give them their flavor and depth. And then we choose our yeast strains accordingly to find the base ciders that are going to produce the best quality product the style of cider that we want to do. Cool. Yeah, I had to eat my words a little bit when I had Merrill on, and we were talking about how winemaking is a once-a-year process and how much pressure it puts <laughs> on it. And I was like, yeah, but for you, a cider, it's easy because you're making it all the time. He's like, Will, no. We press our apples. We do it once a year. It's kind of the same as winemaking, right, where you have to have that really good crop, and what you get depends on your crop as well. That probably makes it really difficult as opposed to an angry orchard who's just bringing in a consistent concentrate all the time. Well, and apple availability is going to be greatest from September to about January. Uh, everything that you're going to bought, purchase from January on is going to go into controlled atmosphere coolers. So they're going to pull out the oxygen in the room and fill the room full of nitrogen and bring the fruit down to 34 degrees. And then they can hold that fruit for up to a year. And so you start to degrade and flavor over time. Huh. So they just, it's freezing it essentially, but not quite. It's not, yeah, it's not freezing it to a point that it breaks the apple, but it is confusing the fruit to stay in a kind of a solid stasis of not, it slows the breakdown process significantly. If you freeze it, it'll explode? Yeah. I mean, it's like anything else. The water inside of it would just start to push the apple apart and spread it apart. Ah, so that's why you have to cut it or so. I've seen them cut and frozen. Maybe that's why they cut them if they're going to do it that way. So what's the old school style? Just throw a bunch of peaches in a bucket and see what happens? So it kind of depends on the cider maker. But when you're looking at like old world cider, um, England is the capital of cider. 60% of the apples that are produced in England are consumed in the country of England. They never, ever leave. And their hard cider, their cider apple contracts, they're from family farms. They've been doing this for five or six generations, and they're writing 20-year contracts to commit to all the fruit that's being produced, and it's going into that hard cider production. Depending on the type of orchard, uh, Tom Oliver is famous for Perry's. Perry pears, they're super tiny, uh, but he makes a world-class Perry. And he'll get to a point where he even lets fruit hit the ground, and he'll pick the fruit up off the ground. And so everything is at its its furthest it can be before it starts to break down into being a not good product. Is Perry a type of apple? Perry is a pear. Oh, it's a pear. Perry pear. Yep. Okay, cool. It's the most astringent thing I've ever eaten in my life. I had one when we were up touring a cider company up in... Uh, I think it was the Yakima Valley. Uh, we were first getting started out, and they had a row of peri pears. And the pear is like, I don't know, this is like one inch in diameter. And I took a bite of this pear, and it sucked all the moisture out of my brain. I had to spit it out. I just couldn't handle the amount of astringency that it had. And it was what the cider maker was telling us is that he'll use anywhere from 10 to 30% in a cider, and that would drastically change the cider. He doesn't make them pure out of peri pears. He'll use other Bartlett and different pears like that. And then he'll use that as the um, – it's kind of like – it's the tannin it's a red wine tannin of ciders if that makes sense interesting so how did you get involved with cider when i first moved here i just assumed talbots had forever done cider but now knowing you have found out it was something that actually you and joe started right it's actually me and my cousin christopher okay joe came on later the backstory is that our family was one of the largest apple producers in the state 
up until the 1980s when CS controlled atmosphere cooler started coming out and different things like that, it crashed our market. And so, really? yeah, because people were able to hold fruit for longer. So people, all the fresh market fruit that we were focused on getting then, they weren't throwing anything away now. So they could drop in price and they just, it completely destroyed the Colorado apple market. And there's still people that can produce Colorado apples today, but we are nowhere near as dynamic as a state in apple production as we previously were. Just because people could overgrow and then save it all year round and use the apples. Well, you had nothing to go to waste. I mean, you sold the apples as you needed them. So, and then you could also spread your market to selling apples year round. So then you could go to a lower price and you could uh, convince grocery retailers of different places like that to keep you because you could give them a consistent monthly product throughout the entire year. And they could give you, with this freezing or almost freezing process, what did you call it again? It's controlled atmosphere coolers. Controlled atmosphere coolers. So let's say the growing season's in the fall. They can come to you next April with a whole apple that looks like it's freshly grown. Is this technology widely available or only big growers able to afford it? The mo- it's very expensive to have CS coolers. There are community-controlled atmosphere coolers up in the Midwest that are used by, I don't know, different co-ops and uh, such as that. In Colorado, there's nothing like that. And that's kind of what got us started in the apple juice production as we were making more money on apple juice than we were fresh market juice or fresh market apples, which is just wild to even think about. And the first couple years, it actually wasn't good. Our bookkeeper at the time bought a thousand gallons off my dad when he started the cider mill because he worked his butt off to make all these ciders and then he couldn't sell them. And she felt so bad for him. She was like, I'll just I'll, non-alcoholic I'll buy non-alcoholic cider. Okay. And then sent it out everywhere to all of her friends and so on and so forth. Oh, that was like her idea of like, hey, we should do this. And then it, it well, tanked? No, that was for her just to support him. I because see, he, see. he was trying to go out. He's trying to sell it. He's building this new brand. He's building, you know, starting from scratch. Our tap room now is the original cider mill. And in it started in 1984. And at his peak, he was doing 200,000 gallons out of just the tasting room. Oh, your, your tap room now used Are, to be the cider mill? Yes. Oh, wow. That was the original cider mill. The cider mill that you're sitting in now wasn't actually produced until 2001. I see. So and relatively new. Relatively new. And so that was moving us. So this became a pretty dynamic arm of the organization and allowed us to well-round even our fruit sales to where we are selling to grocery retailers from September to about January 1st is going to be the bulk of our hard cider sales to, I mean, of our sweet cider sales to retailers like Kroger, Walmart, so on and so forth. Uh, and then we also, with the growing hard cider, we have produced hard or apple cider for a significant amount of cideries in Colorado, New Mexico, so on and so forth, and sending out bulk cider. So was your cider production, the non-alcoholic apple cider, that was a reaction to this newly emerging market for apples all year round from these people that had these coolers. And you're like, well, what are we going to do with our product? Let's move it to cider so well, we don't have the waste. Because before, what are you just throwing all the... I was talking to Priscilla Walker. She said all the peaches, they used to throw them in culls by Riverbend Park. You know, they would just dump fruit into the river or stuff that they couldn't use, right? Is that... So it wasn't that. It was that we were trying to... We were already growing peaches at that time, starting to grow peaches, and peaches were starting to become a little more dynamic and a little more niche, but the majority was still apples. It was one step in not throwing fruit away because once it's bad, it's bad. So we we tried to sell everything we could fresh market, and then from there, produce apple juice out of it. I was walking through the cooler, and for the first time in a long time, it smelled like peaches. Yes, finally. The time is here. Yeah. But we are very... uh, 
We are behind on peaches right now. We're about 10 to 12 days behind in the growing season. What had happened this year, and we're actually off on our expectations, but we're looking at historicals over the last 30 years. And, well, really probably longer than that. But with my dad, his historicals are probably the last 30, 40 years. And we had that mild winter and kind of really didn't have much of a spring and then went straight to summer. And it slowed that growing process down to where we are what we typically would have at this time would be two to 400 bins in the cooler. We have had 20 to 40 bins come in total. Wow. It's a very big difference. Now, you would say this was a mild winter because I feel like skiers would be like, this was a crazy okay. winter. It was a cold winter, but it wasn't like so drastically cold that it's it's hurting the trees. With freezes. With freezes. Like it was super wet, and it was it was cold, but it was consistently cold. And all that obviously affects when the trees blossom and when they get to go. But does that really matter for you guys? Because whether you sell them now or later, peach season will just go longer into September and possibly yeah. October. I don't think we'll make it all the way to October. We usually say we start July 15th and go to September 15th. Okay. Outside of, we have gone a little later into September. We have some fruit that we're growing later at this time because retailers have asked that we could try to push that season. Because originally we just grew standard Albertas. Everyone in the Valley did. And now we grow 40 to 50 different varieties of peaches because they all come off at different times. And that was a response to the market. Customers just wanting them longer. Being able to expand that season. Okay. So getting back to your story, the cider initially when it launched kind of failed. It sounded like nobody wanted it. It didn't fail. It took a long time to build it. And he was driving straight to retailers. There wasn't a distribution network set up. He, a lot of the equipment he built himself, a lot of, it was just, it was a, a, a real startup. And there wasn't like a conference that he could go to that was a think tank of, you know, different things that say, Hey, we're doing this. Let us help you out. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot less information availability uh, than there is today. So as that grew, up until two, by 2001, we just said we're going to have to build a separate facility because it, it does its own thing at this point. I think at our peak, we're about 700,000 gallons of apple juice we do a year. That's hard to even put into perspective. That's a lot of apple juice. <laughs> 700,000 gallons. Yeah. yeah. Holy crap, man. And, but selling through Safeway, Walmart, things like that, local stores, farmers markets, everything yep. like that. Okay. Everything like that, mostly to the peach customers that we have. Just keeping that continuity in different markets. But also we have a lot of success with the dairies over in Denver. So we sell the winter dairy, Royal Crest dairy, all those different dairies. They're, they're our most consistent. They're not our highest volume, but they're our most consistent customer. The dairies want juice? Yes, because they're already doing milk deliveries and everything else. So if they can offer other juice products to such, Fair they enough. might as well add something to it. Yeah, but you were pretty young when this all got started, right? I was very young, okay. yeah. So he started that in 1984. I was born in 92. Okay. So even 2001 when this is built, you're still just a kid. Do you probably barely remember that being happening? And Barely remember it. What was it like as a kid growing up around here? Were you just running around the farm and... And that kind of thing. It seems like a compound up here, right? You, like you grew up on this property? Or? Yeah, well, I grew up up until I was five years old. I grew up uh, down more by Carlson Vineyards. Okay. Um, yeah. We call it the Vile Place, and that's where my Uncle Charlie lives now. And until I was about five years old, we lived there. And then my great-grandpa passed away. And when he passed away, my dad and 
we, my dad and mom moved up to his house with uh, us four kids. And then my uncle moved into the basement with his four kids. And then they started remodeling our former house so that they could have a, the, you know, a house of their own. And then they had a house of their own. So I grew up right behind the packing shed, uh, walked to the school bus every day, which is, uh, it was fun. I mean, growing up, we were, uh, fishing, hanging out in the pond. My dad made us start working. We were like 12, 13 years old. So, um, we always had responsibility and we were always like well engulfed into, uh, the farming culture here. I can't imagine working with that many family members. I feel like it's got to be such a blessing and a curse at the same time. Just thinking about my family and extended, not only just your nuclear family, but extended family and all the offshoots of that and cousins and every day. Every day. Every day. <laughs> and it was easier as we were kids because it was almost like I'm the oldest, so it was like being the pack leader. So I kind of – I felt like I always had responsibility, but I kind of just did what I wanted to do. But I ran the cruise, right? So this is what we need to get done. You go do this. And so we kind of had our own team. We did all the irrigating. We would prune in the winter, thinning, a little bit of everything. All of us were driving equipment by the time we were 16, mowing, driving backhoes, uh, building irrigation systems. So real life skills. Yeah. yeah. Things that you use every day today too. Yeah. Well, and you, you almost feel spoiled to know because so many people are out hiring people to do these jobs that like we didn't have an option. This was, this was just what you did, you know? So it's just an interesting dynamic. Yeah. And people all around town hire you guys to help out now too with these kind of projects. I feel like every time I turn around, I hear some winery you're helping out or some farmer you're helping out. Well, that's that. that Culture is definitely inspired by my dad. My dad is his entire goal is collaboration and he cares a lot about the farming industry and he wants us to continue farming in Colorado. So he will help everyone from a very large farm to the guy with two to three acres to the on labor, on equipment, on whatever. He just wants to keep everyone successfully farming and not see this turn into suburbia, this little piece of heaven that we can kind of growing you know yeah i think uh joe flynn had a great quote on this i think i'm gonna paraphrase a little bit but it's pretty close he said that the talbots and specifically your dad talking about them being some of the salt of the earth and i think he said something like even if you completely fucked him over he would still come to you and say how can i help you (laughs) yeah i was like that's pretty amazing man like that level of commitment community that people feel from him and from your family yeah. And yeah, I mean, does I guess there is some fear in that. We're already seeing a lot of places get developed, obviously up by the highway, but then new developments going in. Every time I drive through Palisade, I see a new farm for sale. It seems like the lavender farms for sale now. Wineries are getting bought up and turned around. Mm-hmm. Kind of crazy. A lot different from when you were growing up, I guess. Totally different. Palisade was the undesirable place to live when I was growing up. Shut up. I swear. It's where the farmers lived. It's, uh, I mean, the town of Palisade, we had one stoplight, and we had trailer parks on both sides of the road. Where was the stoplight? The one stoplight was right in between both gas stations. The ones on six now, like the Dino Mart and whatever that other one is. So we had one one stoplight between the two, and we were just, we were a, like, farming town with you know lower income and it was just totally it was not what it is today we still had wineries and and such but it wasn't 
it wasn't like the wine experience that you're getting today. We've moved more into now Palisade is the uh, probably the most expensive real estate in the Grand Valley. Um, Definitely. We're getting up anywhere from forty to 60000 an acre for producible land, and that to me is just mind-blowing. And it's not feasible for a farmer to come in and buy that land at this point. You would rather, if, if it's going to be sold, you'd rather lease the property because at least you can, you know, keep it farming. But uh, um, Wait, it's not desirable to buy it or to sell it? For us, it's not desirable to buy. To buy it, yeah. Because it's too expensive. So yeah. a lot of our long-term strategy is kind of changing into more lease development because trying to go out and buy land right now for production of peaches, it, we're just not as competitive as we once were. Interesting. Um, Where did the stoplight go? Side note. They just got rid of it. They I don't just know. Took it down. They just took it down. And it was part of kind of all that redevelopment uh, of downtown. This is probably, I don't know, it had to be, it was, I had it through high school. So probably 2011, somewhere around there, they started to take all that stuff down. Okay. And just to become a no-stoplight town. That's amazing that it was an undesirable place to live. Where did people want to live? In Junction? Junction. Junction was the hot spot. You're close to everything. The hot spot? The hot spot, man. <laughs> That's where all the cool kids hung out. Okay. <laughs> when, my, when my parents were growing up, everyone, the cool thing to do was to cruise North Avenue. Oh, like yeah. up and down, Just up and down. through high school, looking for other people hanging out, yep. check out the movie theater, check out the Walmart parking lot. Yep, exactly that. And, and now North Avenue is like the mo- the least desirable place to be in anywhere in Grand Junction, I think. Yeah, I don't even um, use, like you would bypass it, right? If yep. you were just getting into town, it would only be if you actually were going to Discount Tire or wherever. Yeah, it's become more commercial businesses such as Discount, such as Western Implement, such as those different things, and then corporate restaurants like McDonald's, Taco Bell. You know. So did people look down? on the farmers in Palisade as just being, I don't, I don't think people look down. I just think it wasn't, there was not, it, it goes back to that salt of the earth that you're talking about. Like there was just harder people over here. You know, it wasn't, we didn't have this uh, kind of like mountain community that we have today. It was just a lot more like blue collar, hardworking. Yeah. It's know. kind of before the, I guess peach was a cash crop at the time, but wine wasn't quite yet. Yes, a cash crop. It was more still in its developmental phase, so maybe that's been the big change as well. Plus, just tons of people moving here. Tons of people moving here. Where and I think especially COVID exposed a lot of this. That you know when you were unable to go anywhere, everyone wanted to go outdoors. You went one hour outside of Denver, everything was packed. Yeah. Two hours, everything's packed. Three hours, everything's packed. And we're finally at that threshold where we got a lot more discovered during COVID because it's like, holy cow, this sounds kind of cool. Like there's a bunch of mountain biking, there's paddleboarding, there's, you know, peaches, there's wineries, there's all these hip restaurants. I mean, think about all the restaurants in Palisade. Majority of those restaurants, the new restaurants that have come in have come in in the last 10 years. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, everything's before, before Fidel's was bought by Jeff and Jody... Palisade Cafe 11 that John Sabell owned was Cafe 11 because he was the 11th owner. That's crazy. And it's just, it's, everyone's kind of had a different model. And I think with Pesh moving in and, you know, some of these other things kind of changing the distillery, stepping up on, you know, producing food because for a long time, the distillery never had food. And so we're just starting to get more of an elevated food scene here. And I think that that's helped with tourism and that's helped keep people to stay longer. And then with the wineries, we just we're getting such a, a great depth of different t- styles of wines made 
different types of wineries. There's just there's becoming its own little you know wine culture over here. Yeah. Why did the Palisade Cafe fail so many times? I don't understand. Palisade was just not the place to be. I mean, the locals would go there, but it just you know I I don't know. It just that location every time something went in, it just never never went. And then eleven people thought, okay, I'm gonna turn this around i'm gonna be the one to make it better but what has stood the test of time the brewery brewery stood the test of time but the different brewery, owners right different owners and the brewery wasn't always they didn't just make beer for i mean when they first started they also made soda they did some different things like that. i heard about the soda rope root beer i yeah. think they still have the root beer they on still the have the root beer yep okay so that was and, their, their thing yeah so the, well they did the old owner did a bunch of different things and i think when sean came in they kind of between Sean and Danny kind of redeveloped the uh, what they thought the Palisade Brewery was, and that's what the Palisade Brewery is today. So I think the the Danny especially is probably one of the most dynamic. Danny's been there since Sean got the place. Okay, what year so, was that? Do you remember? I have no idea. Okay, I'd have to ask. Yeah, that the brewery was one of the first places I went uh, when I was looking for a house here. In 2019, so I was before the pandemic rush, just for the record. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but in your mind, still a newcomer. And I, it was decision time whether or not to put in an offer. And I said, okay, well, I'm just going to go back to the house. I was staying at a hotel on Horizon Drive. Talk about the hot spot. And then I was like, I'm going to drive over to my house, quote unquote. I'll park in front of it. And I'm going to walk downtown and just see what I feel. So I walked downtown from there, went to the brewery. And it was packed with a live band. I think it was a Saturday afternoon. And I'm just staring up at the mesa, kind of standing in the corner, wallflowering it. Some dude comes up to me and just start chatting. I just tell him, like, hey, just thinking about moving here or whatever. And I don't know. It was just such a great scene, right? And, yeah. that, and being there really put it in perspective. I was like, I can walk to my local brewery. And it was happy hour, so I think the beer was $3 or something. Yeah. I'm like, oh, hell yeah. This is the spot. <laughs> yeah. This yeah. is where it's got to be. So I love the local feel of that. Sometimes I wish they would make more seating inside or something during the winter. Yeah. But overall, I just love how it's, this is what we are. You know, it's nothing fancy. And I think that's what makes Palisade special is that we're all kinds of kinds blended together. And like, we, we don't have like a fighting culture in Palisade. We don't have like, it's a very much like just a community of people from all different walks of life that are able to enjoy craft beer together. And now at the moving food scene, it, but it's just, it's a very holistic, really, um, positive place to be, I'd say. Yeah. Do you like the change? I mean, it sounds like you're a fan of it or not, maybe not to change. I'm sure there's pluses and minuses, but the influx People like me coming to live here. I'm a fan of continuing to be able to farm in uh, Palisade, Colorado. So if the what I don't like is seeing these family farms being bought up and mansions being put on top of them that takes up an acre, two acres of the farm and different things like that. But I get, you know, I, it's, people are going to do what they want to do. But I enjoy the elevated food quality. I enjoy the competition. I enjoy the collective of work people working together. I feel like everyone here wants to see each other successful. So I've enjoyed, especially a lot of the businesses and different business owners that have come in because they've brought in different perspectives that has elevated everyone around them. And it seems like so far, most people that have come here also want that, that collaboration. Nobody's come here out for blood saying, okay, I'm going to dominate this or that. Maybe there's a few examples. Uh, but. I, no, there's, there's nothing that I can think. I haven't thought of anyone that's come in and been like, I'm going to make sure that everyone else fails. You right. know? Yeah. Yeah. So. Which is great. I mean, because if everyone, I mean, if 
it's like if we one succeeds, we all succeed in a way. And yeah. I feel that about Palisade in general. I mean, you were on the tourism board, right? Yes. Okay. When did you join that? Oof. I probably was on the tourism board in 2017 to uh, – it's probably 2016 to 2018 or 2019. Well, I know you were still on there in 2019 because that's how we first, quote, unquote, met. But it was still Zoom meetings for oh, the pandemic. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So actually my first – I had heard of you. Uh-huh. obviously as the Prince of Palisade. But <laughs> the first time I saw you was on the Zoom call for the tourism board and you were wearing this like huge American flag biker jacket. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. You, you still have that one. I was like, whoa, who's this guy? Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> That's my, my old grunt style American flag, Captain America jacket. Yeah. 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 What did you think of your experience on there? Why'd you join just to try and help guide things exactly town of palisade is going to grow and i think people can either be a stick in the mud and just say i hate how it's going to change or they can be a part of the solution in 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 helping craft regardless of what we what there's enough people here regardless of the how it used to be things are going to change and i would rather be a help in changing things positively to where we don't lose what made this town what this town is and we don't just become another mount ski mountain town that's super high end and people come in spend money and leave i want locals to be able to afford to live here i want them to be able to afford to go out and eat here so and i want our local festivals i mean that was a big part on that with the tourism board is i want to ensure that we continue to serve our local craft beer there our palisade beer our our you know palisade cider our you know different things like that to ensure that we kept that because most of these festivals i mean when Las colonias first came in the brewery ska the distillery and us all split the original sponsorship and we ran the food and beverage at the amphitheater for four or five years and then they came back and said oh well this year we want to charge you this much and all of us were like collectively we just we we can't do this anymore and now budweiser owns that um which festival well they own the amphitheater we used to do every single event uh, so we, you guys would provide the drinks for the shows and stuff, and we, now you can't get a Talbot Cider there. No, because we paid for the sponsorship, and we paid for the sponsorship. We were the only people that were allowed to be served there, and we tried to do it so that we got the marketing value to be out there, but it was a break-even proposition no matter what because you just the sponsorship was so high. And then the sponsorship got to a point where we were going to pay like – I think we jumped from like to like $6,200 a piece, and we were all like, we can't do this but the sponsorship got over twenty thousand dollars and once it got over twenty thousand dollars then anheuser-busch will come in and say well i we're going to or or coors or you know there's a lot of these larger beer conglomerates that can come in and that marketing dollar that for them it's just another event for us it's you know it, it is what we do and so palisade we've managed to keep it local beers local ciders uh and a low sponsorship that makes it feasible for us to continue to go at all the festivals Yes. Yeah, 100%. And that was the case at Powderhorn until recently, right? You guys were able this season to flip that. Yeah. Their ex- that was amazing. Their experience I don't with- think people realize that you guys did that. You don't get enough credit for – maybe people have noticed the, the beer and cider and drink options have improved greatly at Powderhorn this season. Yeah. Or last season. That, that was between – my brother was a big driver in making that happen with the brewery and the distillery – 
and their experience with it with the distributor that they were working with is poor and this year we were able to collectively split a sponsorship and start running the bars up at uh powderhorn which has been great because budweiser had that before or some distributor had it right yeah so it was only domestic beer those products that are distributed by them got it yeah so that's a huge win man yeah i think we owe you a lot for that well it's been good and you know even like but you know at the same time like in different areas like pagosa and breckenridge we do work with anheuser-busch and we do pay a sponsorship free to be a gluten-free option so they you know they there's there's a lot that is sad to see where major domestic takes over different things like that but at the same time there's craft breweries within their organizations that work with us to help the little guy be a part of a larger event larger scale event and kind of help move us along in um being able to participate in events like that it's not just crappy domestic beer either i remember i used to write a lot about craft beer and in 2015 i think i did kind of a state of the union of craft beer and pre- the previous decade had all been this beautiful, positive growth where any neighborhood bar would have all your local craft beers and everything like that. But once the craft brewery started to get bought up by the bigger companies, then you would travel around the world and you would have craft beer on tap, but it was Sam Adams or Sierra Nevada. It was literally yeah. all the same. No matter where you went in the country, it was craft beer. So it was a little step up. But then it was always, it wasn't local. It was just like, so craft beer had become big beer, which they always railed against in the, fa- in the sense that they, were, they sold their company and now they were on tap everywhere. So they too were pushing out local craft breweries. Someone like you couldn't get on tap at Powderhorn because, oh, Sam Adams is up there or whatever, right? Yeah. And so it kind of was having this anti-effect of its original intention. Which is really annoying. But you brought up something interesting. Instead of a, well, we need a tourism board, obviously, and we focus so much on bringing tourism to this town, which is important, but maybe we need like a local board, right? Because in my opinion, one of the problems for Palisade is we have this infrastructure for the tourists in the summer, and it's great, and locals can take advantage of that. As you know, we get to winter, places have very limited hours, people shut down their businesses and don't even do them anymore. And we get to the spot where, just like you said, you want to make sure that this town doesn't become something where just people come and spend their money and leave. That's kind of what we are right now, I feel like, because a lot of the businesses are set up for tourists first, locals second. And I I don't say that with uh, bad intentions. I think that's reasonable uh, in some way. Our own company is like that. But finding a way to convince businesses to to cater to locals as well and find a way to extend hours or to draw locals in. I'm just making this up as I go, but it would be interesting, right? To have a committee that talked about that. Like how do we make businesses more local friendly? Yeah. I, I think, I think that's a great idea. And I think that's a problem that we run into, especially as we continue to grow is that you look at areas like, I mean, look at Grand Junction, how many people that go to, they just go to Grand Junction and they eat at Texas Ro- uh, Roadhouse. They go to Golden Corral. They go to, I mean, down the list, they're going to these major corporate restaurants. B-dubs. Which, yeah, and which is, but Roosters is independently owned and people are still going to B-dubs. Like, so the, I think there's a lot of it that has to do with the local consumer as well that they like the brand identity of the larger corporations and different things like that. And that's why those guys have been able to be so successful here. But the locals got to support the local businesses as much as the local businesses need to the locals to start shopping more at their businesses. It's chicken and egg for sure. Yeah. And how do we do it? 
right? These are the things we need to talk about. Like, does the price need to be lower? Do we need to advertise more to locals? Is it just an education thing? Be like, oh, you love Angry Orchard? Well, try my cider. You know, it's right here. Do they just not know about it? Or do they have four kids and they're like, I'd like to go to Roosters, but B-Dubs is easier. I know it'll be... I know everyone will be happy there. I know they'll have this for him and that for her. And so, but yeah, this is an idea I'm going to think about because yeah, how do we get people to patronize? Uh, I mean, a lot of businesses here, I mean, I love Diorio's. I love their kind of old school pizza style. They're closed on Sundays. Yeah. You know, so some days I would get pizza. They're not even open. So I got to go to Papa John's or whatever. Yeah. Um, and again, it's, it's hard because I respect them. If you don't want to be open Sunday, good for you. Go on a hike, go live your life. But we're in this transitionary phase with Palisade, and the tourism board's working hard to get tourists here, but how are we going to also get it to be more local, too? Well, we do it ourselves, and some of this, we've, one of the things we started to do is, like, Tuesdays are really slow for us. Tuesdays are really slow in Palisade. Well, we part, started working with Oscar at El Rey's, and so he's been coming up every Tuesday and being a taco truck since we don't quite have a food license yet, and... Every Tuesday now, we're starting to get this whole group of folks that we have never had before, and our Tuesdays have actually turned into days that are beating our Saturdays, which makes no sense. But their Tuesdays are we just have a local group coming up. It's kind of like the cult following for Pally Thai. Pally yeah. Thai has a cult following. They do. Yeah. And they, they're Locals great at marketing. Night, Monday night. <laughs> they're great at marketing. They send you a text every week. This is exactly where we're going to be. And I think that's where a lot of that begins. So like for our business, we could have just said we're going to close on Tuesdays. And that's in the past. That's what we've done. Uh, unless I want to work and, you know, give everyone <laughs> off. Like I, I have a limited staff of people that I could do. And so we, this year we said, let's try to figure out ways that we can speed up slow nights. And uh, Taco Tuesday was one of them. And so to the past th- two weeks, three weeks, we've had uh, started having local bands come up on those Taco Tuesday nights. And it's just been So it's exploded. Wild. Yeah. People have great. loved it. Yep. Yeah. I love that, man. I talk to a lot of wineries about that, too. I'm like, why don't you stay open past five? And they say, well, no one will come. It's like, well, no one comes because you're closed. And yeah, there will be a, a tough period in the beginning. But yeah, if you're creative with your events and you're really pushing it and marketing it right, I think people want things to do. Yeah. We rock the five to seven hours. Like at, or five o'clock to seven o'clock because everyone up here closes, and so we get this funnel of people doing the wine tours that come in and start drinking hard cider and just hang out because we're the only place open on the hill. So part of what we've uh, we're doing this year is we're moving ourselves over into a vintners restaurant, and so once we have a vintners restaurant, then our goal is food, wine, and spirits. Vintners, that's the license you mean. The vintners okay. license okay. will allow us with it's just like getting a brew pub license, so we can we'll have the ability to produce wine uh, in hard cider just same as it is but since we have food we can now bring in beer and we can now bring in spirits so the direction that we're taking with our spirits and it so I'll start with the spirits is we're going to partner with Peach Street Distillery and we're going to partner with Clark's and we're going to do a different batch cocktail every month where we're going to buy the spirit from them we're going to mix it into a keg and we're going to have two draft cocktails I love that but then we're going to be working with the local breweries Palisade Brewery being number one we will sell him sell them the peaches to make their we sell them the peaches right now to make their peach IPA their bushels of haze it's immediately going to go on tap here so the idea is going to be a fruit education bar and where we're farm to table in our food but all of our products are also things produced by us, sold to other breweries that were able to produce something that came back into this kind of quality. That's so cool. How'd you come up with that idea? Just collaboration? 
why be like everybody else? You know, yeah, it, it. It, <laughs> I hate going into, you know, cause especially in the craft beer industry, you see it a lot in like brew pubs is, you know, we're, we're craft focused. We want everyone to drink craft beer, but they don't think about it with their spirits. Uh, a lot of times they do in, in Palisade, they think about it with their wine in Grand Junction. They think about it with their wine programs. If they're a brew pub, they do have local wines and they do have local spirits, but you also still see that, that shitty vodka. Well, that shitty whiskey well. And I get that like when it comes to a high volume, it makes the most sense, you know, dollars and cents wise. But for us, we're not a high consumption bar. We're not a late at night open bar. So it would make sense for us to elevate our quality and what we're going to do because we're not probably going to be moving as much volume, but it allows us to say, no, no, we're not using that. This is coming from our neighbors right here. I love that, man. That's awesome. And what do you envision food wise? What do you think you'll... We have, cooking up here. We have been so up and down. On it. <laughs> the biggest thing killing us right now is my brother and I have been working on this menu for a week and a half. Really? And we've gone in every direction to a point where we're just like we're at a standstill. And we said we have to have it done by Friday, but we're just gonna we're gonna let it sit for a day or let two. Let it marinate. Yeah. But you're the chef, right? You cook a lot, don't you? I cook a lot. All right. Um, so are you drawing from your own inspiration here? Yeah, and I think that I, – I mean, the biggest thing that I see is that we don't have good Southwest here, and I would love to have more of a Southwest grill, but, like, a really good Southwest grill. And that we're using Palisade peaches, Palisade pears, you know, Olathe sweet corn, Rocky Ford cantaloupes, um, different things like that. With us being a part of such diverse farming community across the state of Colorado, we have friends that sell every type of beans, uh, you know, this, that, and the other. And I think that we, if everything, the cards rolled out exactly how I'd like to see it, we would have a, like five staples on our menu. And then every month it would change another five, another five things would be different on the menu. So we have, these are our staple things that you can expect every single time, but these things are going to be different per month based on whatever's in season. That's kind of like a craft beer map, right? Where they have their staple beers and then everything else changes and keeps you coming back. But you... You know, worst case, there'll be something there you like. I love that idea. So what's the push-pull? What does Joe want to do? <laughs> Whatever makes the most sense and doesn't seem like it. <laughs> you know, Whatever's he, the opposite of you. <laughs> no, no. He, 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 doesn't, he, does, he doesn't. He's not set on this is what I want to see. He, we have the same vision. We just don't know what that vision looks like. Like we have the exact same, we're going to focus on farm. We're going to focus on fresh. We're going to focus on working with our local dairies. Like we want all this to be elevated food. How much are we going to do? Are we going to do elevated flatbreads? Or, you know, there's that spot. Danny was talking to me today. I haven't stopped in there yet, but Danny from the brewery is talking to me today. He's like, I, I have this place in Glenwood that just, it is my favorite place. And it's called the Slope and Hatch. I've never heard of it. So elevated tacos and hot dogs. Ooh. And they have like five different tacos and five different hot dogs. And it's something totally different, but they're like super, super uh, high quality food. And it's something you would never think like just street tacos are good, but they, I mean, they make them like really, really good. Yeah. And just thinking about what's already in Palisade, places do pizza, places do tacos. So how can you fit into that without just being, yeah. The exact Direct competition. Same. Interesting. When do you anticipate getting this license? So we, I just pull are pulling a building permit in the next 
I don't know, probably next week. And that, really? Yeah. Wow. And the building permit will trigger a health department inspection. And then I'll put in, uh, we have a commercial oven we just put in down there. We got a couple stainless prep tables. We've got a new ice machine. We've got a new dishwasher coming. So we're trying to get all the things in place. And then as soon as we pull that building permit, the health department will be notified. And as soon as we pass the health department inspection, we'll start with a very limited menu. So we'll probably focus on charcuterie and fresh fruit to get to the end of the year and maybe have like, maybe it is a pizza night or a taco Tuesday that we're doing something like that just to get up and going as we kind of find what that identity looks like and what our capacity that we're able to handle. So it'll be this summer. Yeah. And the goal is to walk before we run. So probably more this fall. Okay. But Where's the extension going to go? We're we're rebuilt. We're making our spot tighter. <laughs> okay, so, so it'll all be within the current infrastructure. Yes. So where would the kitchen be where it's out of sight? Because it won't be out of sight. Oh, it'll be. You'll yeah, you'll visually we'll see it right in the it. tap room. See it right in the tap room, dude. That's cool. So we're gonna start there, and then the idea. What we would like to do is it if if it starts to make good financial sense, we want to move to outdoor food truck, but we want a stationary truck. Yeah. Um, so we'd want to do something like uh, I don't know, building container or something, and do something really cool, real farmy uh, kind of feel to it. Dude, congrats! That's huge. Yeah, should be pretty fun. Oh, and I want to ask you one thing that you mentioned: the <clears throat> partnership with Clark's. This has a lot of history behind it. I don't know if you want to tell the story. I hear some rumors that you and the Clarks, not you, but the Talbots and the Clarks didn't always get along back in the day. So this collaboration would be something special, a healing moment. Yeah, so the the old joke with my my great grandpa's or with my grandpa's that uh, his dad and the Clarks are like the Hatfields and McCoys. Uh, my great grandpa, I'm I'm gonna butcher the story, so don't take it to exact and fact check me with Bruce. <laughs> but <laughs> we make up things all the time on the podcast. My it? my great granddad was convinced that his packing shed was started on fire, and he doesn't know who did it, but that's probably a good chance that that was it. And okay. so, but my dad's generation got along with the Clarks very well. Uh, I think my granddad got along with the Clarks pretty well. Uh, it was the older generations above that. The Clarks have been here 20 years longer than us. They started in eight, no, 10 years. They started in 1897. We started in 1907. And it wasn't actually the Talbots that started in 1907. It was the Yeager family. So the Talbots were cattle ranchers over on more of the Delta Paonia Hotchkiss side. And Charles Yeager's daughter married Harry Augustus Sr. And that's when the Talbots became farmers because my great, great, great Charles Yeager said that if you're going to marry my daughter, you're going to drop the cowboy and shit and you're going to pick up an honest living. Wow. And so he became a peach farmer. What year was that? (laughs) Oh, man, that had to be 45. Wow. 45 he became is when Talbot Farms became a business was 1945. Okay, so it'll be a big deal for you and the Clarks to do this. You guys have never collaborated before. Never collaborated on something like That's this. That's so, so cool, man. Um, I, I work really, really well with Chris and McKinsey, and so we kind of have some going jokes on like uh, what the cocktail would be called and everything, but kind of the rolling one right now is we make a Palisade peach tea here, and they make a peach brandy, and so we want to blend the two together and call it Harry meets Larry, so Harry Talbot and Larry Clark, and we want to have them like two boxing brothers on the front. I love that. So That'll be so good. I think it'll be pretty fun. Hell yeah, man. So What are you, sixth or seventh generation? I'm sixth generation. Six. Do you feel pressure to stay here? 
No, I, I, all, all of us, all the, so there's 12 of us kids total. You have tw- 11 brothers and sisters? No, 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 no. Oh. They're of all the families that are uh, part of the family business. My dad has four kids. My uncle has four kids. My other two uncles have two kids apiece. Okay. My other two uncles were late to the game, and so their kids are in their teens. My generation, so the other eight kids are all married with kids kind of off doing their own thing. Almost everyone has stayed in agriculture uh, for the most part, with the exception of my sister went into geology. And then I have a cousin that became a school teacher, but everyone else has stayed in ag, just in different types of ag. So my cousin was a John Deere mechanic, and now he works for a dog food processing facility, and he sources different uh, stuff for fresh dog food. And then um, my his sister works for CoBank and works in their ag lending department. And she works with like wonderful pistachios and like all these giant, giant corporations. So it wasn't the case growing up where there was pressure to become part of the family business or stay here. They pressured us all to leave. Um, really? Yeah. Uh, Bruce, when, I love when, it. When my dad graduated, <laughs> well, he couldn't get along with my great granddad. Him and my great granddad, they just, my great granddad was total tal- totalitarianism. And he was, I'm in charge. This is exactly how it is. And if you don't like it, get the hell out of the building. So they did not fare well. If you know my dad, I mean, very, very wants to work with everybody, happy guy. Like, so they just didn't work well together. And so he started working for some other farms and doing some stuff like that. When my great granddad had a stroke is when my dad came back to help my granddad on the family business. And basically my great granddad had said, I'm selling you the business. Here's the deal. <laughs> and so how old was your dad when he, when that happened? Uh, he was born in 59 and Talbot's Mountain Gold, I think was, it would have been early eighties. Okay. So he was an adult, he was doing his own thing too. His own thing. So he was he managing wasn't... three or four farms. Wow. So I just, I thought from the outside looking in just, oh, they all just are born and kind of into the cycle of the, the Talbot's oh, farming. <laughs> my, my great granddad fired my granddad. He did? Yep. And so the reason, or because they couldn't get along. So where I live now is Block 14, which is right next to Cole Terrace. That's the house that I bought. That was my granddad's first farm. My granddad was a teacher, and my grandma was a teacher. So my granddad taught at Central High School, and my grandma taught at Pomona Elementary. And they, he quit teaching, came to work for my granddad. My granddad fired him. He had just bought that property and everything else, and he said, fine, I'm going to do my own thing. And so he did. And the four boys grew up working the farm immediately because that was how they were going to be able to afford to do it. And so once that farm started becoming successful and they started making their own money, they then bought the Griffith place, which is right down the street from here. And they had years that were really tight, but the Griffiths worked with them. They then bought the Vile place. The Viles worked with them. So it's just been a series of different things that led to my great granddad having a stroke. And that's when we're like, all right, let's become a, a, you know, one business again. And from that time, we have stayed a family business up until two years ago. We're still a family business, but Joe and I bought the alcohol beverage business from the family organization. So we lease space from them and we operate here. We buy all our stuff from them, but uh, authority meets, uh, um, how do I say it? It's uh responsibility meets authority at this point. And so it's no longer, well, this is how we did it. It's 
this is the direction Joe and I want to go, and this is what we're going to do. And if we're wrong, we'll deal with it. So you have your own company. We yeah. have our own company. You're separate. Now. Right. Yeah. Okay. So do you remember what made you want to stick around here? Because you had the option to – but you did leave. You were in the military, right? Yeah, I went straight to the Marine Corps out of high school. I was graduated in May. I was in boot camp in September. You couldn't wait to leave? Couldn't wait to leave. Really? Hated Palisade, hated the farm, just wanted to be completely off somewhere else. Do I you didn't remember why you hated it? I just – our whole life, that's what we did. All we did was farm. It was always hot. It was always just work. Yeah, there was like 20 worked. family members around. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> you had free time in the winter, but the rest of the year you just worked. And I just – you know, we'd go to school. We'd get out of school. we spent our entire summer working. And Ugh. so it just got to a point where it's like – as a kid, we were working year-round jobs already, which helped when I went to the military because it was like, what are you guys bitching about? Like, come on, step it up, man. Yeah. And so I did my time in the military, and it, I mean, almost anyone that goes to the military home is a totally different place once you've been in the military. Were you a pilot? No, I worked on aircraft. So okay. I was an aircraft mechanic. I worked on engines and fuel systems for Harriers. Okay. And I was stationed in Yuma, Arizona. And nothing inspires you to move back to Palisade like the middle of the Mojave Desert. Yuma. Nice. <laughs> so you're fixing engines and doing all kinds of maintenance and stuff like that. Yep. Wow. So I went to school, went to boot camp in San Diego, went to school in Pensacola, Florida. That's where I did my A school. Then I went to Cherry Point, North Carolina to do C school. And then I was stationed in Yuma, Arizona, where I finished out the rest of my Marine Corps career. Do you like flying now? Uh, if I was go- if when we got out, I could have went and got an AMP license and just worked on jets. If I was going to stay in that field, I was going to go be a pilot. There's not a chance in hell I was going to go back to working on it. Yeah. You work Wait. too hard to fix stuff for a pilot to break it and not really understand like what it takes to fix that. And I want to be the guy that can break it and not have to fix it. Oh, so the pilots directly break stuff. It's not just a malfunction. Well, of- it's it's not intentional, but they can overpressure them. They can – I mean there there is pilot error on top of there is uh, you know equipment error. There's a little of both. But there's people that will break speed speed times and different things like that or break Gs, and they'll just, you know, they'll, they're will they rough on the jets. And these jets, I mean, Harriers are 1980s. That's when Harriers were, like, at their prime. So we were milking jets. The jet is no longer a part of the military. We were pulling parts from museums and from boneyards to keep our squadron running. Really? Yeah. So the we military were, was that? We out were, of date? Well, yeah. We, were, we don't make the parts anymore. So we were cannibalizing jets because we've moved on to different things. And by that time, the Air Force had already moved on to the F-35. The Navy had already moved on to the F-35. The Army had already moved on to the F-35. The Marine Corps is the last branch to, like, well, we really like our Harriers. And finally, the, when I was leaving is when they fully transferred over into F-35s. Did you ever see any evidence of UFOs or anything working in I the did, military? I didn't, but... Did you see that hearing today that just happened? I did. I did and yeah. I was surprised when I came into work today. And I was like, did you guys see this shit this morning? And everyone's like, no. And I was like, dude, you guys got to look this up. This is pretty wild. Yeah, I'm in, man. Like, I can't decide whether... I, like, part of me thinks... A lot of this stuff people are seeing is just our own advanced military projects that we're uh-huh. doing. But when I was in college, I was really into the Roswell crash. Yeah. Like I was reading books about it and like getting having conversations about it. I even like drove through Roswell on a road trip hoping to see something. I don't know, man. It's just it's that's to me, that's like the whole thing in our lifetime. Like if I could pick one thing that I would see why I would be alive would be confirmation of extraterrestrial life, something outside this planet. That would just, 
I don't know. It would just be world changing. Well, how big the universe is and how tiny our universe is in comparison to the overall universe. And we consider ourselves, you know, extremely intelligent beings. For me to see how big it is and to think that we would be the only beings that could exist in this universe, I believe there's there's got to be something out there. And I'm a huge Marvel geek, so, you know, I'm hoping for the Guardians <laughs> of the Galaxy to show up. I'm waiting for the Avengers to form. Uh, ready for Elon Musk to start the Iron Man suit program. There we go. Well, we might have to, because um, who's to say the aliens are friendly? Yeah. I mean, if we discovered another planet that we were technologically superior to, don't you think that we would fuck with them? <laughs> There's a good chance. There's a start. great chance. <laughs> <laughs> we kind of do it all over the world. Yeah. 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 We do it on this planet. Yeah. So why yeah. wouldn't we do it there? And I agree with you. I mean, the probability is there, right? So I yep. can understand that. But there's a difference between probability and then actual proof of like yes. seeing it, right? Agreed. And having everyone be like, wow. And then just to see the fallout of that, like what would happen with religion and people who, you know, I don't know, just the whole, our whole thinking would, would change. Just like when people thought the earth was flat, right? Yeah. Totally changed perspective of, of where we were. I think in today's day and age, because of the media, because of everything that's happened, because like in the past, since COVID, you can say that would have never happened. And after COVID, you're like, yeah, some shit like that probably did happen. Like, it could I, happen. It, it's <laughs> believable. So I think that there would be a huge doubting at the same time. So there would be a lot of questioning on one end, but at the same time, they'd be like, no, it's just fake news, man. That's, there's no way that that's real. There's no way. Totally. So I think it'd be really interesting. Oh, it would be amazing. And just... Yeah, like, then what? Like, maybe they know something. Maybe they can be like, oh, we know how the universe was formed. Yeah. Like, we, oh, that's the religion you have? Or they could be like, yeah, idiots, we came to you 2,000 years ago, remember? Like, <laughs> yeah. we were the remember guy the pyramids? That, remember when we ascended <laughs> up into the sky, like, on the ship? Yeah, exactly. I don't know. Just, I feel like that would be such a groundbreaking thing. So, the fact that they're talking about all these things openly, but it partially makes me skeptical, because it's the government, right? So, yeah. like, what... Why are, Why now? Like, right, Is there really just an inquiry of these people are whistleblowing and coming out? I read something today. It's like, oh, this is their way of just trying to like get us comfortable with the idea. And I was like, okay, man, I think we're comfortable with the idea already. Yeah. Like we saw Independence Day. Yeah. You know, like we've seen all the movies. We get it. So like why would they be doing it? And then you just go down the rabbit hole of the internet and it gets crazy pretty fast. Well, and I think there's a lot of distracting in this culture. I'm not saying that's what it is, but there's everyone wants to get you going over here while all this shit's happening on this side. So maybe this brings like this now takes over social media and this is like the most popular thing people are talking about. And we're not thinking about the election cycle, what's happening over here, what's totally. happening with COVID, what's happening, like all these different things. As long as we can keep you occupied over here, I think so much of the media, regardless of what side anyone lies on, operates in fear and it tries to get people to be fearful and to play or to to polarize each other into two classes that are just at each other all the time 100 percent, man well we just saw like uh, hunter biden today he didn't get his plea deal so now that investigation is going to continue but now you're going to see like more news about trump and then biden news and trump yeah. news and it's going to be like which side can capture your attention which side yeah. can take over the twitter feed right it's to all distract you from the other side being under investigation and at the end of the day you're just like all these motherfuckers are corrupt. They're, they're all bad people. <laughs> it's like, yeah. God, come on. No, yeah. I, I, it's, and, and it's, it's generations of, of political power. And that's what's just, I mean, we, I don't think we are where we intended to be uh, at this point, but it, we're just, we're in a, 
like I said, we're in that type of world where it's just like all of a sudden the things you never ever thought could happen would happen or would ever be talked about are like hotline topics and you're like really what i don't know it's weird weird times man like what what do you what's like a hot topic on your mind i don't know there's so much without <laughs> you want to be careful what you say <laughs> <laughs> also in today's world yeah, yeah. you be canceled man well and that's like the 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 fear of i mean we we've had some negative experiences for our family has hosted politicians since the beginning of time here. We've led them all to our facility. Anyone who's running in the district, we've, you know, kind of, this is an open place. We want to educate you on ag. How can we continue to farm? Because if you're the candidate that wins, you're, and we don't pick and choose who we're going to have here. We've had the Department of Agriculture's secretary here. We've had like a little bit of everything. And, you know, that's been something that was, uh, We've rented, we rented the tap room with somebody and it freaking blew up and it was super negative. And then not long later, we had someone on the other side that was, I'd say, a little less polarizing and the local news picked it up and was like, oh man, this is so cool. And it was just like, and it seems like you just, you're towing a line all the time. And I also do think that that is everyone's inspiration towards authenticity right now and why everyone's becoming more hyper-local and more focused, like actually giving a shit about the school system now, actually caring about what's happening locally. And I think spending less time, they still talk national politics, but I think people are starting to at least talk more, maybe. I don't know. I hope so, man. But I feel like this election cycle is going to be even worse than the last one. Oh, my God. And it's just going to be a total shit show because – I would say at least two of the candidates are going to be under investigation while they're campaigning. And so it's just going to be like, I just, I sit back and I'm like, really, this is the best we can do. Oh yeah. It's crazy. No, it's, it's absolutely insane. It's crazy. And Uh, just, I wish, you know, I, I hope we find some unity, but I don't know if we will, because to your point, I do agree with you. The media, like a lot of businesses thrive off the passion mm -hmm. and that's the business model of the internet. Yeah. There's no local paper anymore where it's like, well, it might be a little boring, but you're going to read it because it's the it's Palisade here. newspaper and it's about all the people you know and it's about things happening to you that are relevant. So it doesn't have to be sensationalized because it's about what you're – I mean, that's kind of what I'm trying to do with this podcast, right? It's It doesn't have to be some crazy soundbite. It's just people know Charles Talbot and they see you every day. So maybe they want to learn a little bit more about you. So they'll tune in. Right, I'm not promising any like breaking crazy thing that's going to change your life. You just get to know them; it'll add to your experience next time you come up here. But the national media and regional media can't operate that way because yeah. they're competing against other people trying to do the same thing. So how can I grab your attention? How can I make you mad? How can I make you interact? How can I make you share this article? And that's that's the game plan going well, forward. And I think that's why you're seeing more traditional media start to collapse. Oh, they are. And they're collapsing at an accelerated rate that's just, I mean, it's hilarious to watch. And when you look at who people are listening to, it's hilarious to see the growth of podcasts and what's going on with podcasts. I think Joe Rogan's the most listened to person on the internet at this point. I think on the planet, man. Yeah. I mean, it's seriously. And, and I would say that the majority of America probably feels like when he talks, he's very open to listening to what everyone's got to say. And he has a really interesting perspective on everyone that he brings into his room and it's 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 interesting i agree yeah open dialogue yep which is kind of what the news used to be i'm not going to sit here and say it was never corrupted before because of course it was but yeah it was just now podcasts are giving this open format conversation which you don't get in the mainstream media you're just getting sound bites and you're getting like 
your example, you bring one politician in, no one wants to cover it. You bring another one in and they want to cover it. So they're choosing their side, right? They're, Absolutely. they're revealing to you their colors pretty, pretty easily. And it doesn't take long to see, to have that come through in today's. So we'll see what well, happens. I was just amazed at the, you know, we'd go through the, because we had a bunch of negative reviews and everything's like that. And I was amazed because you could see where reviews come from. I mean, that's the other side of the internet is it's real cool to be in your basement talking shit. I mean, I, I, I this, I've said this a million times and it, it pisses a lot of people off, but I think our culture changed when people quit getting punched in the mouth yeah. for saying something stupid. Cause anymore people will open their, like they'll say whatever they want. They'll say the meanest thing in the world from the comfort of their own keyboard in their own basement. But when it actually comes to trying to have a conversation, they're done willing to have a conversation. They would never say that in public, but man, being behind that screen, you could say whatever you want. You could be as mean as possible. And it's like, come on guys. Yeah. Like, I, how do we get here? There are consequences to free speech. Yeah. You can say whatever you want. But if you say something that upsets someone else, you have to deal with those consequences, right? The internet removes that. I mean, nowadays you can be quote-unquote canceled, but yeah. that's not a real thing for just your average person, right? No. Um, so, yeah, that's a great point. Do you guys get a lot of negative reviews? No, not Not a really. lot of it. I mean, like people being very targeted about just one particular thing or, oh, I saw your political sign or – Something like that. We've had some stuff like that. And, like, that's the other thing is, like, we are a farm. So we have signs on, like, our neighbor's property that's across the street. It's not necessarily our farm. However, it's in within the vicinity. So, like, we've had some stuff like that. Um, it, but that's annoying to, to me because – and this is, like, with politics. Like, you can vote for someone on a platform that has nothing to do with who they are, like, overall, yeah. right? So, like, you – maybe you're just – voting strictly on a farming platform yeah right so yeah you see two candidates and you're like well i don't really like either of them but i know this guy he's going to be really good to me on what i need so i'm going to vote for them and that's understandable because that's your livelihood whereas somebody else may look and say well you know what like i'm going to vote for this person on this platform or i really believe in like not drilling or i really believe in drilling whatever it is it doesn't mean you accept the whole person yeah i mean we only have two options right yeah. case in point my sister got really mad at me a couple year, a couple elections ago because I was talking about voting for a third party. And she's like, well, that's such a waste of a vote. All you're going to do is like affect one of the two main candidates. And I'm thinking, all right, so now I live in a country where I only have two options. Mm -hmm. And if I vote for someone else that's running, who is running, that's a waste of my vote? It's like, no, how do we move things forward? It's like by if a lot of people vote for the third party, they might not win. But at least maybe next election cycle, they get more. They start getting scared. They get more steam, right? And then yeah. more people are like, oh, maybe I'll do that. And eventually, hopefully, you have more options and stuff like that. Yeah, when you only have two options, at some point, you're either – like no one's going to ever love the complete person. Like mm -hmm. a very few presidents do that and satisfy everyone. So you have to make a choice. And if you don't vote, you're an asshole or yeah. people tell you you're an asshole. I've not voted. And it's because, well, I don't like either of these two people. Yeah. Um, but then sometimes you have to choose. Well, okay, I'll vote on this platform or that platform. So just because someone has, I mean, like just because someone voted for someone or stands for someone on either side doesn't make, doesn't mean they are that person or they accept everything about that person. Yeah. Like you have to pick someone. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, and I, mean, I was. Come on, like lighten up. <laughs> I, I, I was listening to an interesting podcast and it was some time ago, but um, I've always listened that. Have you ever heard the MFCO project? MFCO, no. 
the motherfucking CEO project. And it's written by Andy Frisella. Andy Frisella owns First Form, which is a giant sports supplement company. Well, he owns multiple other businesses, but that's his main business. And after COVID and everything else, his platform kind of changed to not just being business focused, but being more focused on like current events, what's happening. So he has different sections that you can listen to. And one of the interesting, one of, I was listening to one of the episodes and one of the interesting things that he said in this last midterm cycle is it was the most independence ever elected that we've had ever elected the, since we've had the two-party system. And it was something only like 15 in the entire United States. It wasn't an astronomical amount, but to your point on the third party, I think that the, the American people are starting to get fed up and they're saying, oh, there's another option. <laughs> so I don't know that we're seeing that wave uh, of people moving away from the two-party system, but I think we are definitely seeing people are being more objective on their thinking, and I think that people are tired of being polarized. Yeah, um, I agree. Places in Europe do it. They have a billion parties they vote for. The problem is the winning party gets like 25% of the vote. Yeah. So it's like now 75% of the people are unhappy. Yeah. So it's – but I would I would argue that the numbers are misleading because, like I said, people are forced. It's like I bet you a lot of people voted for whoever, like Biden this last time, Trump or Obama for, who were like, eh, I guess he's the best option. Yeah. Right? So they're not really casting it with passion. Yeah. Um, and when that candidate wins, they're like, yeah, I voted for him, but – so I guess I'm counted as a happy person, but whatever. I just voted for him because that was the best option. So maybe it wouldn't matter if – I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. It's just we're coming up on it, man. The primaries happen. It's going to happen. So anyway, back to Yuma. Uh, <laughs> you, you just decided to come right back here after the military? Like, yeah. Did you get deployed? I didn't get deployed. Okay. Um, That's probably an annoying question, right? No, it's not. I mean – it's probably the, it's like the everyone gets asked that question. Like, I know, but it, it's like I don't mean to diminish your experience. No, I'm sure it no. was like still pretty it was scary still a hoot. and like intense, right? Like, oh, it's a hoot. I I like the military because the mili- like it was a lot of hard work, and there were there's stuff you didn't want to do. There were shitty times, like for but I feel like that's sad in life. I feel like the Marine Corps for me gave me that opportunity to get through that stuff with a series of other people going through the same shit. So we collectively grew as a group because we embraced the suck together and, and you bond um, and you bond and you, you start to become friends with people in a million years. You would have never, ever thought you'd become friends with my roommate. When I first moved in, he was from Michigan. I flipping hated this dude. I was like, (laughs) this guy sucks. And he was just, he was a college kid. He was hip. He was just, just like, I don't know, he's very, very different coming from like a really big farming blue collar like kind of background. And we got paired together and you have no choice. Like this is your roommate. Yeah. And uh, by, it took about three, four months, but I'd call my mom every night. I'd be like, this guy's a douchebag, mom. I'm like, I don't even want to go back to my room. Like I don't <laughs> like this guy. We became best friends. Oh, that's awesome. I've been best friends ever since. And so like you just bond with people you never thought you'd bond with. And it's, it's, it's a good time. So, but after... You know, a couple years of that, when I got to the point where I could get out, I was immediately like, I want to go home. I want to buy a farm. I want to buy a truck. I want to get a dog. And then I'm going to get married in the next five years. Whoa. I was like, I, this is exactly what I'm going to do. It's this like is the, the American dream. The American dream. I want that. <laughs> that this is exactly how this is going to go. It did not work out as planned. No. Um, I bought the farm. Paid for it. My first year, the crop paid for itself. Second Excellent. year. 
the entire orchard died. What? And I milked it for two years, but I went to a point where I was, I've, I've, at this point, it hasn't paid for itself. And I replanted all of it. And this, this year will be the first year that I can pay back my, some of my replanting debt. And then I'll have another year. Hopefully that'll pay off almost all of it. And then I'll be, hopefully, from then on. Why did the farm die? Uh, Gamosis. Is a highly susceptible. Gamosis? Yeah. Cytospora canker is what it's called. And it's a disease that gets into the tree and it pushes all of the gum out of the tree. And then the tree becomes brittle and starts to collapse. So if you see, when you're driving through, you see peach trees with like huge sap uh, spores. It's because it has gamosis and it's pushing that sap out those cracks. And that happens, it spreads tree to tree? Yep. Ugh. How do you get it? Just certain varieties are susceptible. (laughs) That's what it was. (laughs) Now, certain varieties are susceptible. Certain varieties aren't. So, I winter cold starts it. So, if you get a really cold winter snap, it starts to crack the subcellular level of the tree and starts to open it up so that those spores can, you know, embed themselves into the tree. I had Sierra Lady. Sierra Lady are highly susceptible. When I pulled them all out, I went to a super late season peach and was like i want something that it doesn't have to be the highest yields because my my i my sierra ladies were a 98 percent pack out it was the best peach pack out we have ever had they're maroon in color they're extremely pretty but the trees suck so i was 14 years old my trees were 14 years old so they should have lasted at least another 10 years and by that time i would have paid off the farm uh, i would have you know sort of been thinking about trying to remodel that 1930s <laughs> 600 700 square foot house you know a lot of things would have changed but that was another good upset that happened that i was like well i guess i don't have it all figured out Imagine that. Imagine that. You know? <laughs> you know? And so when I moved Your back. Your dad's probably like, yep. Yep. <laughs> he, he was always like, well, it'll get better. Just give it time. It'll get better. Just give it time. It'll get better. That's well, great advice, It's actually. been eight years that I've been, uh, eight years that I've had my house at this point. From the time you plant a small peach tree, I'm assuming when you replanted, they were small. How long till they give so you, you a significant crop? You plant a tree that is three years old. So all the trees that you're planting, you're planting a full tree into the ground, like three years from a seed. And they're like what, two feet tall? Yeah, two feet tall, three feet tall, somewhere Slow right grow, there. Slow grow, man. Jeez. And so after that, depending on how you plant, there's two different planting styles. Typically, is you have a bi plant where you're just growing two main stocks. You're going to have thirty percent more trees, but um, it's a binomial. I think so it's called, but you're going to have uh, basically two major limbs and the trees are going to be three feet apart, or you're going to plant with a quad V and you're going to have four major limbs that you're growing. You're planting the trees five years apart or five feet apart. So you're going to get your uh, quickest yields on a by V and you're going to have that in about three years okay. on a quad V. It's going to be about five years. Damn. So you got to, take care of them all that time and they ain't doing anything for you it's like having a kid it's the same thing (laughs) and down down the road my granddad had a place and the freaking orchard is literally it's it's maybe an eighth of a mile quarter mile down the road from me and he got 34 years out of it with good crops and i'm just like what the hell man because when he sold it to me he sold it all in good good he gave me the family deal you know i think i paid twenty thousand an acre in 2015 so it was a really good price he was trying to be really competitive he wanted to make it work 
And he's like, it'll pay for itself. Don't worry about it. And then when it crashed, it was like, well, I guess uh, it won't pay for itself. And yeah. But you made the, the land you could sell now for more, right? Could, but it was the first family farm. Couldn't do it. Can't do it. Can't do it. It's where all four of my, or my dad and his three brothers grew up. It's where my grandma and grandpa, this is the first house they bought together. Um, wow. It was kind of where they built their entire life. Wow. So, Got to keep um, it in the fam. Could never get rid of it, yeah. Damn, dude. So, and there's buyout clauses in case I ever thought that that was going to happen. My granddad was like, it can go back to the organization or it can go back to a family member, but it cannot be sold out. So, All right. Well, there will always be at least one farm in Palisade then. There will always be at least you know one. That. It'll stay, man. Yeah. So. What, what made you want to – was the military riding you up to be the American dream? I think you got so used to not having – feeling like you had a home, feeling like you had a family, but you had all the sense to do it. And now you're not being controlled. So yeah. you have this freedom aspect that you need to grab. But you're not really grabbing the freedom aspect. You're actually tying yourself down. So I don't know. It's just it's that's that was the thought process that I had and that's how it had to go. Not to go travel the world and get a girl in every port or something like no, that. No, wanted to plant roots and just, you know, live that American dream. And originally I started farming for my dad that first year. All I did was um Backo work I did, you know, installed the irrigation systems, came back and just immediately started working on the farm. And then my cousin and I were both homebrewers at the time, and I started homebrewing when I was in the Marine Corps. Beer or cider? Beer. Beer. And I've never tasted any of that. I haven't made beer in pro- since probably 2017. Come on, man. Well, I'll, we'll make a beer this fall. That's what we'll do. All right, let's do it. We'll, make a, we'll make a beer. We'll make a graph. We'll do a good cider beer mix. They make cider beer mixes? Yeah. It's called a, I've never had that. Graph. They I've never seen that. Is that it's available on the market? Not something you're going to see. No? It's just a style. Maybe that's something different you guys could do. It is. It's not a widely accepted style. <laughs> <laughs> Does that taste good? I don't want to be too niche. No. Okay. It it's good. It's just it it goes back to that education perspective where like what we're producing we think grabs a pretty wide consumer. And it's a little more of an entry. I, it's high quality cider, but it is more of an entry level. It's not highly offensive. It's not stylistically. It's a modern American cider, and so it is. It's a little easier to convince people to at least try it, and yeah. maybe they won't be in love with it. But uh, it's not something that's going to be offensive. Whereas, yeah, but isn't it funny? Like what people can be convinced of. Like for example, people do a Jaeger bomb. Where they'll oh, drop God. a shot of Jaeger into a beer and chug that. So I feel like Maybe. you'd be convinced. <laughs> everyone, everyone drinking those mystic. He had a mystic biscuit from uh, Roosters yet? No, I haven't. What's that? It's like their local drink. Everyone in college drinks the mystic biscuit. It's flipping nasty. It's Blue Moon, like raspberry liqueur, and a shot of something else. And you drink it just like you would drink a uh, Irish car bomb. So they pour you the uh, the blue moon and you drop this shot into it and you drink it and it's ter- it tastes like a, a raspberry biscuit I guess it's terrible. I've never been to Roosters. I gotta go. What? It's in the shopping center where you turn off on three forty, right? It is. I've seen it there. They used yeah. to have three. Oh. They used to have that location there. Agavieras in Clifton was uh, the Roosters we all grew up going to, and back then it was nineteen ninety nine for endless wings. So Ooh, super you could good do deal. Some damage do there. Some damage. <laughs> we wouldn't eat for a day, and we would all go out and just mosh, man. Um, and then they had one out by the mall uh, a while ago, but well, okay, all right. So then, right. I guess after that, 
my cousin and I, we wanted, so one of the biggest things that my family always said is if you want to be a part of the family organization, you got to bring something back or you got to bring something new to the table. But like, we all are kind of in our positions. We kind of have our things like you need to prove to us that you can do something in ag that's, you know, contributes to the organization. And that's how that originally started. Now they wish they could have a carbon copy of themselves <laughs> to start doing their possessions because they're getting to an age that it's like, man, I'd really like to do less. <laughs> and I've spent 10 years, almost eight years doing this. I don't really want to go do something different, you know? Yeah. And so we came up with a business plan, an initial model, and we said, hey, uh, we would like to go ahead and uh, start a brewery. And my uncle was like, my uncle Charlie was like, why? And we're like, I don't know, because it'd be fun to make fruit beers. And he's like, there's literally a cidery right out back. And he's like, I like the ideas. Everything makes sense here. It's like, why don't you guys spend the fall, make some ciders, and let's see what we think. And so Christopher and I were all R&D, started making ciders, started finding stuff we liked. Did we you know how to, to make cider? No, no, man. We took, and that that was like the hard part of when we started out in producing cider, is we were trying to use all these beer methods. Cider behaves like wine, yeah. and we're trying to. We're approaching this from a brewer's aspect. We're ordering like pre-made yeast, like white label yeast, for like a thousand bucks a batch instead of propagating our own for one hundred fifty bucks. Uh. So we didn't know what we didn't know, you know. And so we just came in with that perspective. And what our biggest thing that we started with is we wanted to have a beer yeast on one half of every fermentation and a wine yeast on another half of every fermentation. Then we wanted to blend them together because the different yeast strains focused on such different flavors that when you blended them together, you had more body in a cider because they just, they produce something totally different. So all of our ciders initially were an ale yeast and a white wine yeast or a champagne yeast or so on and so forth. And so we started with three products. We went into 16-ounce cans, which was the wrong thing to do. Why? Six, because 16-ounce cans was the Northwest market. Was the mid or the Midwest market was anywhere that has high Irish populations tend to be more acceptable of 16-ounce. Colorado at that time, the beer market was 80% 12-ounce cans. And we said, we're going to be smarter than the beer market, and we're going to do it in 16s. To this day, if you look at the Colorado beer market, Eddie Lines, you're only 16. I mean, people do 16s out of their tap room, but for the most part, if you're distributing, it's all 12-ounce. Interesting. And it's related to the Irish. I'd never heard that. I'm telling you, I don't. I'm it doesn't Irish. make, I love it, that. Doesn't make <laughs> any sense to me, but it does. It does it's, make it's, sense. It's yeah, uh, it does. it's that the basically where the Irish followed is where 16 ounce cultures tend to be. Interesting. And um, I love a tall boy, man. Is uh, that a tall boy? Yeah. Or is that 24? Well, there's tall and taller. There's, there's a craft beer tall boy, and then there's a uh, domestic tall boy, and I, I think craft beer is more of like 16 or 19 too. Nineteen two, yeah, that's yep. it. I've seen those like it's for sale, Rockies games and things like that. Yeah, yep. what were the original three ciders? So Alpine Start was our flagship, okay. And the idea behind Alpine Start was we wanted to make something that was like more traditional hard cider that was back sweet with fresh pressed juice. So we were at that time. Your main ciders were thirty five to forty seven percent or forty seven grams of sugar. Our first cider came out at five grams of sugar with fresh juice. Whoa. And we stayed that. We have not, I mean, we've had one cider go over like six grams of sugar, but for the most part, we have hit that off more off dry than semi-sweet category. We've stayed in with all of our production. 
So we figured that one would be the easiest to start pushing towards the you know, already hard cider drinkers. Then we came out with IPC, which is our Indian pale cider, and we just fill it full of hops. Yeah, I like so, that one. And well, it's a lot <laughs> more refined. No, 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 <laughs> it's a lot more refined. Now we're we're really a lot more focused on dry hopping and citra hops. Uh, originally, we were steeping the hops. We were also dry hopping. Like we took our process and we've condensed it and made a better cider, I think. But the original process was just an astronomical amount of work. Were your original batches just? Like how many gallons? Fifteen hundred gallons. Oh, so you had big equipment right well, off the bat. Because my uncles had this perspective that was like, if you're gonna buy the tank, you might as well buy the volume tank. Because they're thinking, they're thinking like a a food producer. How do I? And I already have these established customers. I need to be able to fill truckloads. So their entire model was like, let's fill truckloads. We didn't start with a tap room. We didn't have a tap room to 2018. That tap room's 2018. 2018. Dang, dude. And it's changed significantly year after year. It's gotten bigger and bigger, and the stage has gone outside and different things like so that. So before, people didn't come drink here. Never drank here. Wow. Palisade Brewery was my first account. My second account was the Grand Junction Ale House. So those of us that moved here pre- and post-pandemic are pretty lucky. Yeah. It's just always been a part of our life here. Yep. Wow. And I think our we would have our trajectory would be a lot different today if we would have started with a tap room because we never started with that high margin. Everything we were running was like off a 40% margin. So we went out. Yep. We went out. I did all the deliveries. So we basically make hard cider all night and we do deliveries all day, every day. And it was just me and my cousin were the only two employees. And when we first started, there wasn't enough work for us. So we still were working in the packing shed. We were still working in the fields. So like we started just, when we had time, we made cider. So you had a canning line right off the bat, all that. Like you guys just amped up and were ready to go. But when we did our canning line, we did the bare minimum. So we're hand loading all of our cans and doing all those. That's, you know, it's a lot different than it is today. Yeah. That's cool. So That's great. And you guys just got in a Safeway? Yeah. Wait, do, do you want another beer? Sure. I want you to try this one. I'm like really into it right now. It's a little hoppy, and now now you've got me skeptical of every hoppy beer I, I taste. But it's the Lagerado, and it's been been treating me well. But that's huge news, man. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Is it like f- four of your ciders in every Safeway in Colorado? So basically, there's a little more backstory that's going to go to this that will expl- explain this a little better. So originally, we had a different distributor. When Joe and I bought the business, we fired our old distributor and we now have three distributors are hoping for a fourth distributor uh, here pretty soon. So with the Safeway deal, we got four products approved to go into the Safeway stores, but they're only to the areas in which our distributors can distribute. Okay. So there's places in like, like super Eastern Colorado and like dinosaur and like Rangeley that we probably, they're not going to be able to get our cider, which sucks. So we were with our last distributor. One of our number one accounts was in dinosaur and it's because everyone was coming from Utah and they'd buy all their cider and beer Ah. in Colorado and go right back into Utah. Imagine living in Utah. (laughs) Dude, that's wow. But tell us the backstory because I don't think people realize um, and me being new to the beverage business, Everyone from the outside probably looks at you of like, I'm a sixth generation Talbot. Ah, yeah, it's so easy. They might not even realize that you started the cider company and they just figure, oh, yeah, people probably come to you all the time. I mean, this must have been a huge pitch that you guys were doing over a long time, no? It took a long time. Yeah. And, 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 like a grind. 
it was a grind and our, our business model 100% changed during the pandemic. We were 70% draft. Our number one account in the state was Applebee's. And I got Applebee's by knocking on every single Applebee's door in the state. Applebee's? Applebee's was my number one account. We crushed it with Applebee's. And you would just cold call, walk in, like the one calls. on Horizon Drive. I passed by. That was my first one. Then I got in. Montrose, then I got Durango, and then after I got those ones, I went and got one in Denver, and then the fourth one that I hit, I got a call from the marketing director of Applebee's, and she was like, all right, so you want to be in Applebee's? And I was like, <laughs> sure do. She's like, why don't we set up a meeting? So she set a meeting with the beverage director, the marketing department, and a couple other big managers in Denver, and we all met. They tasted all the products. And she was like, sweet, we'll put you in every store. So we went into 32 Applebee's. Whoa. And we're going to put you on the locals menu. We're going to start you as a happy hour discount dollar off. And we're going to put you in the main menu. Oh, dude. And so we just like all of a sudden this just changed like must everything. must have been a scary meeting. It was terrifying. Yeah. And we were timid to buy <laughs> at that point. We didn't have any money. So, like, they were like, all right, so these are the things we'd like to see, a tin tacker in every store. We want coasters for every store. What's a tin tacker? Like the, the um, oh, like metal a, tin signs. A marketing. Yeah, thing. so we want, you know, we want you guys to be re- well represented. These are the, they didn't say we want. These are the things we suggest that you do, and we'll distribute them accordingly. And but you got to buy them. We got to buy them. Yeah. So you order all this stuff, and you're just like, oh, my gosh. I hope, hope, this hope they don't cancel after this two works. weeks. <laughs> how this works. And then after that, you know, we got the tavern group in Denver. Same thing. I was working over here a week, and then I'd go stay with who used to be our sales rep. I used to go stay with him for a week, and then he and I would split up, and we'd cold call Denver. And so we were back and forth. I was back and forth every single week. What a grind, man. It was nuts. But then we got the tavern group. So we had uh, the taverns like DTC Tavern, Whiskey Tango, Foxtrot, um, Ultra Vase Cantina. Uh, We had all these like super cool spots that were like the up-and-coming spots. And then we got the Punchbowl Social. Then the Punchbowl Social opened their second location. We were doing cocktails. We were doing menus. Like I mean, it was just we were flipping moving. And so my entire experience was all on-premise. Well, then when COVID happened – all these buyers went away. All these companies went out of business. And everything was now liquor store focused. And fortunately, Joe, that was his only experience was liquor store. Because I was like, I mean, Joe, I've wor- I worked with the big guys. But like, I, I, I hate cold calling liquor stores because they're always mean, man. <laughs> Whereas we had like the tricks of the trade. We'd call in and be like, hey, yeah, just, you know, who's the GM? I'd be like, oh, blah, 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 and then you just hang up and you talk to him later. You call like two weeks later, like, hey, I was just wondering if Bill the GM is in, and you know, I'm just I'm returning gonna... Bill's call. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then it, it was, it was. So we played games like that. We played games like we would just go in and say, this is what we got. This is our stuff, and you know, we definitely favored it and supported those accounts that we were closest to to make sure that they were successful. They saw us in there. Is Applebee's still going for you guys, or was that pandemic? No, the pandemic ended. Okay. Now we're. Well, now you got safe 80 90% on premise or off premise but so now with Safeway do you guys have the inventory to deliver or are you going to be ramping up even more we're ramping up yeah so we since Joe and I bought the company we've been very much like it takes 6 weeks to produce it let's try to ride this out as long as we can <laughs> and so we do and we and we've been we haven't gone out of stock on anything yet we'll probably go out of stock on peach this year That'll be the only thing right before peach season. 
But but you only get to do it once a year, yeah, right? You do it. Well, the, yeah, the peach juice a little different because we kind we do freeze some fresh peach juice because we sell it to Breckenridge Brewery and we sell it to some of the different wineries. Yeah. Um, we could have made more. I wish we could have made more, but we didn't. So we are uh, now ramping up for Safeway and. We're just going to see how it goes. The products they chose, they chose the products they wanted to choose. And I was like, poof, man, you guys chose the hard ones. Of course. <laughs> Can't make it easy for you. So, When do you start? When will we see it? September 1. Oh. Yeah. So, so they picked guys... up the Mix Box, the uh, Calamosa, Alpine Start, and the Green Chili Cider Pincho Six Fuego. packs? Uh, six packs except the Green Chilies in four packs. Okay. Cool. And do you guys like feel because you introduce a new flavor, it catches on right away. You're like, wait, do we know how to make this consistently? Do you guys feel pretty confident that you're going to? We feel confident in our ability to recreate the product over and over again very well. Yeah. Um, Merle is probably one of the best documenters I've ever met in my life. And he does Merle's every the man, dude. Dude, he's the bee's knees. Yeah. But so how does that work? Because with cider, it's alive just like wine or kombucha, right? Mm-hmm. So. But there is an expectation for the customer. It's like when I get that scrappy apple, I remember what it tasted last time, and I want to taste that again. But the fruit's different, right, year to year. So are you really striving to, like, hit that exact taste, or are you trying to, like, wine, express vintages and things like that? We're trying to, as close as we can, hit that exact taste. Because of the – so we're using dessert apples. Dessert apples are not necessarily – what has been traditional for hard cider production. Uh, most of the apples that they use in England to produce hard cider are produced just for hard cider. They're uh, inedible. They're super bitter. They're sharp in flavors. Like they're just not something that you're going to eat. And those are the ones that make really good ciders because they have a high tannin value. And that's why they taste terrible, but they turn into a really good drink. Whereas in the United States, almost every modern American cider is made with dessert apples. So the same thing that you're going to see on the shelf, Granny Smith, Fuji, Pink Lady, you know, kind of down the list. So with that, we're pretty consistent year to year, batch to batch. And our biggest focus is our yeast strains and the time that the time and the temperature in which we're running our fermentations. Okay. So you can get it pretty close. Yeah. Yeah. That's Perfect. So Merle's changed a little bit of some of the stuff, and it's been good. It's been much for the better. He's kind of – we've designated some different yeast strains that start to express a little better. But part of that is is that the hard cider industry is now growing enough that they're making hard cider-specific yeast. So things that we were typically buying that were ale-focused, now we're buying a saff cider yeast that's very similar, but it's going to push more of the fruit expression. So that's good. Very good. Makes it easier. It's just going to get easier. Well, I won't get easier. It'll get better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you guys have goals for expansion beyond Colorado? This is another one between me and Joe. Joe would love to be a very, very large brand. I would like to be a regional brand. I would, if, if, every, if the cards played out perfectly for me, we would be like a yingling. We would be a regional you know brand. I love Yingling. Dude, all, the, all, was... all of my Marines are from the East Coast, man. Yeah, dude. I kind of them, grew but... up on Yingling. Yeah. yeah it's like the regional beer in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, tri-state area. Love a Yingling. Yeah, absolutely. So that's kind of where I'd like to be is a Southwest brand. So focus on New Mexico, Arizona, Idaho, Wyoming, Montana, 
Utah, uh, so on and so forth. I mean, just as kind of that Western, Southwestern brand. Yeah, it's a good idea because like I was raising earlier, right? It's like as you grow and grow, you kind of then get away from this like, oh, we're hyper local when you start. And then you start growing, growing, growing. And all of a sudden you're in freaking Maine. And it's like, well, we're maybe not hyper local because now we're pushing out a main cidery or something. So maybe regional is that happy medium where you can grow enough to make a good business, but you're not, yeah, like pushing everybody out all over the country. I was talking to one of my larger brewery friends, and he said what they sold in 17 states, they sell the exact amount in all 50 states. Say that again. They In 17 states, they sold just as much beer as they do in all 50 states. Wow. Because they expanded so far out, they quit focusing uh, with reps in those areas. So, yeah, they added new states, but with the addition of new states – they lost their focus on the markets. Right. So you're not dominating markets anymore. You're just, okay. And you probably limited inventory now that you're spreading out everywhere. Yep. Yeah. There's something to be said for that. Yeah. It depends on how much you can produce. Do you feel like you've conquered everything locally that you want to? No, not even close. I think that I have been blessed since I got into this industry to have some of the best mentors I could have ever asked for. And they've all been industry people from very large breweries to very small breweries to restaurateurs to wine industry uh, folks that have helped, have been able to help direct me in multiple different ways. Obviously, with the change of COVID and changing focus markets and different things like that. I've learned that everything is consistently adapting and everything is consistently changing. And so whenever, if I get to the point where I think I got it figured out, I'm definitely wrong because I'm obsolete the next year because it's going to change into something else. Yeah. So our strategy is ever changing, I guess. And we want to grow, but we want to own our backyard first. We want to feel really good about our state next and then we can start expanding outside of that yeah because direct to consumer is the best margin too yeah. so if you guys have a tap room now and you can have you ever thought about just having a, a tap room well i guess it's almost designated to cider now you have the wine program and yep. you're talking about expanding it to beer and stuff but that would you know just selling direct to consumer that's how you rock it a lot of craft breweries never distribute and they they still kill it so we do uh online sales that is one thing we can do is we ship to 38 states. You can buy it online? You can buy our cider online and ship straight to your house. Really? Yep. What's the permitting for that? So we work with a company called Vino Shipper, and Vino Shipper takes care of our governance for all of the different states. But we have to go, we pay Vino Shipper a fee and we go through them as the platform. So if you buy on our website, it's going to take you to their site to sign out. But it allows us to have direct to consumer, direct to your house, cider, sales, which isn't the largest part of our market yet, but we're now working with Snapchat, we're working with Instagram, and we're working, we actually have people assigned to our organization to try to help expand that to be a bigger arm of our organization. Advertising on social media. Yep. Really? No one's doing it. Snapchat, we're a 30% click rate in the Grand Valley because not a single local business is doing it. I didn't know Snapchat had... uh, Advertisements when you go through stories. Really? We're going through people's stories you hit an ad in between each person. And what's yours say? Uh, ours right now is Pura Vida, and it's uh, Costa Rica. In, in promotion of our uh, pineapple cider that's in the tap room. Okay. That's a new one, right? It is a new one. And yep. you just went to Costa Rica. Damn, that's Any where the inspiration there? <laughs> that's where the inspiration came from. What did you think of Costa Rica? Uh, 
Costa Rica is probably one of the most pretty places I've ever been in my life. Beautiful, uh, yeah. Jungle, rode, jungle, jungle. I rode horses, horseback with my girlfriend through the uh, uh, in Hako. Uh, we went through the forest horseback and then on the beach horseback, and it was one of the best experiences I ever had in my life. I mean, it was unflipping believable. What made it? What just the shift in terrain? From shift in dry terrain, Colorado. Yeah, well, and like horseback riding's always been fun, but I've never horseback rode on the beach or in a jungle. Like, it, it's just a to- you're in a totally different place. Yeah, seeing monkeys, you're seeing like this doesn't seem real. We we like to think that we're the wild west, and you know. It, the rest of the world doesn't have horses unless they're like European horses that are all fancy. You know, we're very much like, I don't know, it's just different. You picture horses in the mountains in Montana and Colorado, Utah, kind of, you don't picture them on the beach. Totally. And the jungle is way more wild than it's the West insane. here. In terms, I mean, our terrain is cool. I love the mountains and the Mesa, but you get into the jungle, it's all kinds of crazy. Easy yeah. to get lost. Very easy to get lost. Yep. No perspective. Yep. I just went back to New Jersey. I had a bachelor party this last weekend, and I spent a night at my mom's house. And it's pretty wet there, but it's not a jungle. It's more forest. I felt like I was in the Amazon rainforest, man, coming from here. I flew in, and my mom and I sat outside and had a drink. And I heard, like, all this wildlife and insects and birds and all this green and humidity. I was like, holy crap, man. I've been in western Colorado too <laughs> long. <laughs> it was like shocking, yeah. right? Yeah. So, yeah, you get into that environment. I've been to that coast. Uh, that's the west coast of Costa Rica, right? Yep. Uh, but I didn't go to Hako. What would you think? Hako is super fun. It's kind of like an old hippie surf town. Yeah. Um, a lot of retired folks. That was So the downsides to Costa Rica. A lot of it's retired expats. Okay. So your average age is like 50 plus. And then you see some bachelor parties and some bachelorette parties, different things like that. But like the their target demographic, I would say, is fifty plus. And the food, the food was just they're bland. There wasn't a whole lot of like, you know, it was easier, and it has to do with how close they are to the, the Panama Canal. But it was easier to get Asian when we went to the market to go shop, and then go to back to our Airbnb to cook. We had all the fresh fruit in the world that you could ever dream of, stuff that you've never seen. When it came to spices, seasonings, everything else, it was easier to get Asian spices than it was to get Mexican spices. Really? Which was the oddest thing. And we were shopping in their locals market. And so we're like, I mean, it's tucked where all the locals actually shop is tucked like way back into this area where you kind of feel like you're going back for a drug deal. Just like a really (laughs) shady place to be. And you walk in, it's like this really nice market. But, uh, yeah, it, it like finding Mexican hot sauces. Like I wanted to make tacos, and like even their meat when they. So you you have this like taco in your head, and this is what you're thinking about. And so I bought some of their marinated meat, just like going to a carniceria here, and you go back, and everything's marinated in like barbecue sauce. So it's just like totally different style of food, style of cooking. It was it was weird. What um, what is the thing you said about the Panama Canal being your distance? I think from that there? it that's that's the only explanation I could come up with was why they have so much Asian influence is because so much is coming through the Panama Canal on vehicles, on like everything else. That was the only way that cuz otherwise it's shipping a ports in Mexico. I yeah, mean, I can't sense. see where else. So Interesting. Yeah. And you go to Mexico a lot. That's like your spot, right? Mexico every single year, every at least year. once a year. What do you like about it? Food. You can eat anywhere. You can be in the shittiest places in Mexico and have the best food experience. You can be in the best places in Mexico, have the best food experience, no matter where you go. All the food is good. Everyone's always happy. And there's always cold beer. Yeah. 
Literally. Oh, there's a joke about Mexican food. It's like, oh, what's a taco? It's like, oh, you know, it's like meat and cheese and a tortilla. It's like, oh, well, what's a quesadilla? You know, it's like meat and cheese <laughs> and a tortilla. Like, oh, what's a – you know, it's on and on. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's very simple, but, yeah, it's like – it just has everything, protein, carbs. It's like very satisfying. But are you just into the tacos or are you getting more advanced? Like I know Mexico City, for I'm example. I'm obsessed with seafood. Oh, the seafood. Seafood. Okay. I've had a lot of dietary restrictions uh, over the past two years, and seafood is the one thing I can eat, and I will like any type of seafood. Getting old, bro. I know. It sucks. <laughs> I just got bad news today. I got an MRI, and I have a torn labrum in my Ouch. left shoulder. Yeah, and so basically the options are to just stick it out and have shoulder pain the rest of my life or get surgery and – after the surgery, you're in a sling for four to eight weeks, and then you have a total of four months recovery time where you can't do anything where you're going to risk re-tearing it. And he's like, so think about your schedule when you might be able to fit that in. I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah, let me just slide that one in. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, dude, whatever. What do you do, you know? Life goes on. Yep. Yeah. But where do you go in Mexico? Everywhere. Everywhere. I, I, I – it favorites would be dependent on like experiences. I think Cancun has the best ocean yeah. as far as like the prettiest. It's just gorgeous. Once you start going down south, I mean, and, and they talked about it while we were in Cancun, the, the, what got me really like hyped on going to Mexico is no one was going to Mexico because of the pandemic. So in like 2020, I got seven days all inclusive in Cancun, flight and hotel, everything for seven hundred bucks. What? Flew out of Denver, and so I convinced twelve of my friends, and we were all like, "Screw it, we'll get down there." If the all inclusive sucks, it sucks. Whatever, like we'll just hot, we'll bum rush up and down the beach. Yeah, but you can eat for so cheap in Mexico. It doesn't exactly. Matter, yeah. And the, the only downside to the all inclusive, like we used it as a crash pad, and we basically went out and had fun everywhere. When we did, we ate there like twice, and we're like, we're never like we can't eat here. It's just not good. Yeah, I've done that um, before. Like obviously the, in the travel world, all inclusives are a hot topic on whether people like them. But I exactly what you did is what I recommend. It's like all right, use it, especially if you get a deal like that. You can eat your brekkie there. You can drink there. You can whatever free beer in your hotel room. But yeah, go out for tacos. It's not gonna. Yeah. I can drink a hundred bucks worth of beer a day. Hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent. We believe. can make this happen. Yeah. You know. So it was it was awesome. And so when do you go on your trips? Because if you have the peach, like summer is so busy for you, then you have peach season into September. I'm assuming fall is when you brew your cider. So how do you? It's find also it? our largest sales time. So call it O and D. October, November, December is basically for cider. For cider, yep. Really? Just because it's the fall harvest? It's the fall. That... Everyone's already drinking fresh apple juice. That's ah. when everyone's thinking about it. You know, Thanksgiving, Oktoberfest, uh, Christmas. Like, that's the only time of the year you think about taking home apple juice. Well, those trail sales directly correlate into hard cider as well because you're already thinking. Cider's on the mind. Uh, and that's why we've kind of expanded our seasonal program on the cider side. And we have, like, the pumpkin cider, the Belgian wit, the mulled cider, all of those things because they fit those different months. I see. I didn't realize that. I didn't know. Well, it makes sense when you say it now. Yeah. yeah. So, um, But is cider still like the third wheel? Do you have trouble with that? Because people are into beer and wine, but it's like cider is still like a kind of an outcast thing. How would you describe it? So it isn't on the off-premise world. So when it comes to like liquor stores, grocery stores, different things like that, hard cider is important. 
and they're going to make multiple SKUs for it, and it gets a lot more attention. When it comes to the draft worlds, it's a lot more difficult because we're going to have 20 beers, and we're going to have one cider on tap. And so that's been like the change, and we're talking about that like ever-changing like focus on distribution. Is for us, it's not how do we get, not how do we take cider tap handles. We don't want we if we see a Colorado cider tap handle, we want them to be successful. If we see a, a mainstream tap handle, yeah, we're gonna make a play for it. Who wouldn't? But if we see another Colorado cider company, we're gonna look at the entire draft board, and I'm gonna say you pay way too much for that IPA. You have six IPAs and one cider. Yeah. And then that starts that whole level. So basically it's that education. It, it does, we do get the poll. Once it's available, people are buying it. But it's it's convincing beer buyers to change their mindset on that cider is just your gluten-free option. The beer program is the most important thing. But I've been to uh, restaurants over in Denver where it's 50% cider, 50% beer. Really? When you go up to Oregon was the biggest. When I was up in Oregon – you would see bars, hard cider industry in Oregon is absolutely unbelievable. When you're in Portland, I haven't been there since 2017. But at that point, they had 17 cider companies in Portland proper. And you'd go into places and it was like 50 cider, 50 beer. Wow. And with such a diverse craft beer scene, I think Colorado has way more than enough opportunity. It's just getting out there and educating those buyers. Yeah. I like cider is... Um I like it because it doesn't fill me up like beer does. Yeah. Uh, some of the sweeter ciders have their own impacts, obviously. But I, I also like to put cider over ice. What do you think about that? I'm not a cider over ice guy. Okay. Yeah. Waters it down a little. But we are having our Pomo coming out. If you were to put our Pomo over ice, I'd 100% support that. What's a, Is that the pineapple one? No. So, oh. so our Pomo is our big collaboration we just worked on with Beckernitz Distillery. Okay. So Breckenridge Distillery just came, or is about to, they're two years in barrels, and they're going to come out with a Talbot Cider Company collaboration, Apple Brandy, and every other month we have been sending them hard cider that they're distilling into brandy. No kidding. And so wow. the first round we did this, they shipped us four bourbon barrels, empty bourbon barrels, and distill it. So we took that distill it, and we blended it with fresh apple juice and some fermenting hard cider build these barrels all the way up and they've been sitting in these barrels at this point for a year. Our first promo is going to come out. Breckenridge Distillery said, nope, we are happy to give you the naming rights. Go ahead, throw our brand on the side. Just let us see it before, you know, before we uh, post it and make sure there's nothing crazy. Yeah. But they're a hundred percent. We're like, let's do it. So they're going to do their apple brandy is going to come out in two years. So another one more year, they will put our branding on it. And then we have their branding on the bottles. On That's ours. In another year. We'll, we'll have ours next month. Oh, heck yeah. Theirs will be available next year. And is this a sipper or a chugger? or? It's 23% alcohol. Okay, so pick your poison. So Got you're going to drink it like an apple brandy. You do a lot of collabs with them. I remember you had the camper parked out front for a while last so, year or two years. Breckenridge ask. Brewery. Yeah. So Bre Breckenridge Brewery and Breckenridge Distillery are two different organizations. Ah, okay. But the distillery, these partnerships are new. But we're hoping to continue to work with them to build kind of a fruit spirits program. They got a lot of opportunity in growth. They're just they're a really fantastic distillery to work with. Then Breckenridge Brewery. So Breckenridge Brewery, when I said the Ale House in Grand Junction was the second account I ever got, that was when it was owned by Breckenridge Brewery. And that beer buyer was oh, Jaeger Sharp, who got transferred back up to the main facility six weeks after he made the decision to put our cider on. Ah. So the 
that started because we actually, it's funny, we went to the same church camp together. He's a little older than I am. Grew up in uh, Cedar Ridge. Went to Plateau Valley. Local kid. Went to Mesa State. Like, got in the craft beer industry. And so his and I friendship is what started all of those talks and collaborations with Breckenridge Brewery. And the first collaboration with Breckenridge Brewery was in 2018. We did an American Apple Blonde beer that at the time we called How About Them Apples. (laughs) It won third place in the Craft Beer Awards. And then we were flown out to D.C. to present it for uh, – no, that was the second beer. So so we did the Colorado Core first, and then that one was wildly successful at the brewery. They still do it at the Breckenridge Brewery in Breckenridge, but they don't distribute it anymore. Then the second one we did is Governor Nagese over in Denver. He came out to do a beer education tour, and so we did a peach sour beer with the governor – that we fermented with Breckenridge Brewery that was called Nagus's High Country or High High Desert Goes. So we did a goes and then they flew us out to DC and we got to present this beer to all the lawmakers and talk about craft beer. Really? It's freaking wild. You, you so, s- unbelievable. We had beers with him on top of the building in Breckenridge. We were drinking beers on top of the building. We had to take a pallet to climb up the side of the building. And we're sitting on the top with the governor just hanging out drinking a beer. It was wild. Dude, so it cool. It was insane. And you gave a speech to lawmakers? Yeah. Get, well, no, I didn't give a speech to lawmakers. We were talking. This entire room was full of lawmakers that were out trying to get a greater understanding about craft beer. And so we made our beer with the congressman. And so when we made our beer with the congressman, we were representing him and his beer. And then all these other states were doing the exact same thing. This is back when the laws were It was called Brew Across America. Brew Across America. Yeah. Super cool, man. So then after that, we said, man, there's something with this peach. I think there's opportunity. So we mixed the peach into a wheat beer, and that's when the Palisade Peach Wheat was born. And the Palisade Peach Wheat for Breckenridge is one of their number one distributed beers in the state of Colorado. Makes sense. Palisade Peaches. Yeah. All the peach juice comes from our farm. And it's all fruit that traditionally would have went to processing to either go to Noosa. And if we couldn't get it to Noosa because Noosa had a cap on how much they would take, then it was going to go to the dump. So we were able to process it into juice, collaborating with Summit Hard Cider in Fort Collins, who has Summit Mobile Juicing out here. They process the peaches right here in this mobile trailer that we then freeze at Metagold to sell to Breckenridge Brewery throughout the year so that they can keep this Palisade peach beer going. Amazing, man. That's so, so, that's so cool. And they're out here right now. Yeah, they're out, they're out here right now. Will they be peaches. here the whole time? They'll like be here for the season. next four weeks, five weeks. I think the Palisade Peach from Breckenridge is one of the furthest reaching brand ambassadors of Palisade. I mean, I know our peaches go far, but that beer, I've seen it on the East Coast. Yeah. So that's one of the farthest reaching Palisade brands we have. Yes. And you did it. It, it, it worked out. Well I, done, mate. It was uh, – it was a lot of fun, and I, I think it's a good beer, and it's it's been cool. And since then, we've done continued to work together. That peach pod that you were talking about is what we call it, the peach pod. Yeah. So we're and we're getting ready to kick it off here really soon. We're going to continue to educate people on the Palisade Peach Wheat Beer, and so Breckenridge Brewery is going to release on their social media a giant push towards Palisade, and people will be able to rent that peach pod for the price of a six pack, so ten dollars a night and I'll move it to different peach orchards. Heck They'll yeah. be able to stay in a the Escapod trailer in a peach orchard with a six-pack of Palisade peach wheat and fresh peaches from our farm. And how they win that via contest? Or? So they'll send it out, 
and it will be you will have a timeline in which if you grab it, you get it for ten bucks. Yep. Last year they sold out in like I think it was like two hours. I'm surprised it took that long. Yeah. yeah. That well, price. at this point today, my guess is it'll this year minutes. Yeah. You won't be able to log. You'll get rejected. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll look forward to that heads up before it goes on sale. I'll give you that heads <laughs> up. <laughs> what do you hear from, because uh, I don't think a lot of people realize there's two other people in Palisade that make cider, Red Fox and 13 Bricks. Do you guys collaborate or talk or do you know much about their cider programs? They don't distribute, right? I think they're just on premise. So Red Fox does distribute. Oh, they do? Um, Red Fox. So they do it in uh, Bombers. Okay. Um, limited distribution, but they're much more niche focused on producing hard ciders for their tap room. That is their key focus. They're a winery first, cidery second, but they do have a really cool cider program. And if there's one I'd suggest, their orange crush cider that they just came out with tastes like an orange creamsicle. Yeah. Unbelievable. So they're fun to work with. We've worked with them in the past. We used to do all this is pre COVID. I mean, a lot of stuff has changed. We used to do a, um, uh, hard cider festival with them. We had three. We used to do on their property every year, and it just got to a point where between COVID and managing all oh, the stuff. Oh, you guys got to bring was, that back. We need to bring it back because if you look at Big B's, they have the largest hard cider festival in the state of Colorado, and they have five or 6,000 people to show up there. I mean, it's absolutely insane, and they represent like 17 cider companies when they do it, so they buy cider from everyone in the state. And then they give you a free camping spot as a cider company. You want to come out and stay, come out and stay, enjoy the concert. Heck yeah. So super cool. I'd like to continue to work out something like that because I think it'd be really cool. For Asians, we've, we've, we're in the business together. For Asians has the 13-bit Bricks Bistro. Yeah. They do distribute. They do four-packs bottles for p- forbidden fruit where cider. You, where can you buy it? I tell you the truth, I don't know their yeah, distribution I've never program. Seen it anywhere. Yeah. Um, they used to – they were at Canna Creek for a very – like. I don't know. I don't, man, it's just my job's changed. I'm operations now. I'm no longer marketing and sales. No, no, man. So like, I haven't man. been in the market enough to like know, but. I've actually never been to 13 Bricks or tried the cider. Never been there. Yeah. Do you have a recommendation? <laughs> Uh, I like their I, I like their ciders. They're definitely on the sweeter side. Okay. Yeah. Um, different style than you brew. Very different style, and and I think for education of hard cider and kind of, you know, it, there's still a modern American cider to get a idea of the different ciders. I would put Red Fox on the driest category of the valley in Palisade. I'd put us in the off dry semi sweet category, and I'd put them in the sweet category. Yeah. But. That's good diversity. I mean, there's breweries that only make lagers. There's breweries that only make, I mean, Stone IPA. Stone basically only makes IPAs. That's it. Yeah. That's it. But if you go to their spot in uh, Escondido or Oceanside, they make a whole shit ton of other beers that are 10 times better than their IPAs. But they just don't don't distribute distribute because their brand is an IPA. Is it, you'd be the guy to ask, is it true that we're getting another brewery in Palisade? I've heard that we're getting another brewery, and I've heard that the people bought the Blue Pig. Right, yeah. Um, I don't fully have an understanding Where of the purple what, cow was. We have, a lot of, we have a lot of uh, colored animals downtown. Yeah. It's like it's, the Blue Pig and the purple cow, but then the, that was a different coffee shop, which now I'm forgetting. Sorry. Copica. Whoever. Copica, yeah. 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 Uh, and then now that's changing over, and I hear that's going to be a brewery, but I have no idea. I have no idea. I've I've talked to, I've heard of people that are involved in the project, but I've not talked to anyone directly to see what they're going to do. But it'll be interesting. I you know I wouldn't be opposed to it. I I think 
yeah, I mean, I don't think it'll affect Palisade Brewery, and I think that just having a different take on some brews and maybe it elevates everything with some competition and just another spot to go. It goes back to that there's 30 wineries in the valley, probably. Yeah. Yeah, and they're all, you know. They're they're all doing their own thing. They're focused on what they do. I mean, look at Grand Junction. Grand Junction's booming in beer right now. Between Ramble Vine, Monumental, uh, well, I guess they're Beer Camp now. Beer base Camp. Base, base Camp. Base Camp, yeah. Uh, Foam and Folly. Foam uh, we're starting to. Gemini just get a moved lot. into Gemini. some new building. Have you been in their new building yet? I haven't been there yet. I went there the other day. It's, I don't know what the building is, but. You guys should just look up the new location and go. It's in this mixed-use office, and they have the first floor. So you feel like you're walking into a little bit of an office building, and then you turn right, and they have a tap room with all this loungy furniture. But then they, they sort of own all of the first floor, so you can actually walk into other rooms while you're in there and sit in other – it's it's kind of bizarre. I'm not describing it well, but if you get a chance to check it out, it's interesting. What it sounds like, did you ever go to the living room in Denver? No. They, they were another COVID casualty, but they were this bar called The Living Room, and they were basically like rugs. It was like rugs and couches, and you went up to the bar and got your stuff, and it was like sitting in a living room. Oh, that's cool. It was like these little communal couch areas all the way around. Dude, COVID's the killer. COVID was the killer of Aren't on you premise. happy you survived? God, I'll tell you what, man. I, I'm so glad I wasn't a restaurant during COVID. That would have just been miserable. Brutal, uh, dude. Brutal. And I'm glad. That's one thing I'll give to the Palisade folks uh, here is Palisade Brewery, 357, you know, down the list. Everyone was supported. The local, I mean, us as an organization, we've never eaten out so much. We ate out as a company once a week to ensure that those, and, and it, it in the grand scheme, maybe it didn't make much of a difference, but I felt like the town of Palisade did say, We'll buy our food to go. We'll try to keep everyone, you know, moving and employed. Yeah, so. no, there was that for sure. COVID's so weird because some people it absolutely crushed, and others it's sort of people thrived. I mean, a lot of I have friends that are homebodies and they loved it. Yeah, they were like with their girlfriend, and their girlfriend always wants them to go out. And now they're like, oh, it's great, I get to stay home. That's <laughs> the simplest example. For me, it, it was where Palisade Kombucha was born. I the, the COVID ended my time in Hawaii, so I came here and then ended up making kombucha in my bathroom and was like, this is actually pretty good. So it's just weird how bad things lead to good things, good things lead well, to bad things. What I was very happy to see in the brewing industry with COVID is how much more dynamic people's thinking could be. They had a break out of the box. There was no more this is the way. It was very much like, well, it was the way. Now, yeah. we kind of got to think about how we can figure out like to-go cocktails, to-go like different things like that. We got to start to redevelop what we're doing. And now we're to a point in the state of Colorado where uh, a board's been created to basically hopefully rewrite the alcohol structure of Colorado and how many liquor licenses we have and so on and so forth to try to simplify the system because now we got to think – outside the box to try to simplify people's ability to run an organization here in the state of Colorado. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. It's a created innovation, right? Which, and I think yeah. Colorado is going to do great, but a lot of those meetings, everyone's bitching about the fed level and it's like, well, uh, we can't change it here. So I think people are doing the best to change what they can in Colorado and hopefully make it better for simplify things and make it easier for people to produce alcohol in the state. Yeah. All right. Well, I got to wrap it up, man, because I got to get home for dinner. But I want to close on one small thing. Uh, well, actually, two things that I saw from you when I was digging into research. You're a very public man, if you if you knew or not. 
And something interests me. You posted a stat that really blew my mind that 98% of U.S. farms are family farms and they account for 86% of farm production. That's amazing. That's crazy because we think of big farms ruling the world and Monsanto and all this stuff. But like, is it really true that like 2% of the farms producing 14% of farm production can dominate our mindset that much? Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, and a lot of it's not being produced in the United States. Uh-huh. Like that's what you got to think about a lot of those marketing companies. When you're looking at Del Monte, you're thinking of Dole, you're thinking of these organizations. They have a shit ton of farms in Mexico. They have a ton of farms like in different places within the world that we're bringing into the United States. Interesting. China's now one of the China's the number one producer of apples in the entire world at this point. China. China. Who would have thought? Apples. Apples. And we import them in here. Into Talbots? No, 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 Wait, wait, edit that out. They get imported into the United States, but it is, yeah, and, and you know, another statistic you got to tie to that is that 70% of the family farms in the United States fail on the third generation. And our family has been able to make... 70% fail in the third generation. Because the first generation works their ass off to start an organization. The second organization does everything they can not to lose it and makes it as efficient as possible. The third generation doesn't want to work as hard as their parents do. They don't want to work as hard as their grandparents did. And they get comfortable and they either lose it because of nepotence or they lose it because uh, they just... It's not their passion. It's and the ability to, to travel has become yep. easier. Options open up. Uh-huh. Yeah, like 100, 200 years ago, it's like you couldn't move to Europe with ease, right? It was no. Like, you know, now, they, like, you could have chosen a different path. You could have just been like, I'm moving to Croatia or Costa Rica or Mexico. Yeah. Screw it. Let's see what happens. You know? Yeah. So options open up. I get that. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, that was just an amazing stat. You're a good follow on Instagram, Prince of Palisade. I'm <laughs> sure everyone should follow you. And one other thing I learned from you that I didn't know, I had no idea that apricots are a once in every five year crop. Yep. I was going to plant an apricot tree, but now I'm not going to do that. And finally, I noticed like you post a lot of stuff about happiness and just like your life philosophy and about self-work and, and self-help. So I'm just curious, do you practice that every day? Do you have any things that like you do on a daily basis that have helped you? I think positive mindset is the number one thing that has ever kept me going. I can't be around people that are downers. It, it just drags me. So positive mindset, I've always had to focus because between being in the Marine Corps, we had a lot of hard times. Being in the farming industry, we had a lot of hard times. Being married and divorced, a lot of hard times. Going down the list, I've had a lot of hardship in my life, and if I would not have focused on the positive things that were happening around me, and and my dad was really the biggest inspiration in this, but there's always a good side of everything. Find it. Don't focus on the negatives. You focus on the negatives, you'll never move forward. You'll always be stuck in that moment. If you can consistently be improving and focusing on the positives, you can take a shitty situation and make it something successful. Dude, we're uh, really lucky to have you guys in this town, you and your family, and thanks for making time to come on and talk with me. Really appreciate you. Charles Talbot, thanks, man. Thank you. Lucky to have you as well. Terrain, flying high up once again. Got my crew sitting healthy and my boo living wealthy. Level 99, never settle in my mind. So I pedal and I climb up the pedestal and find all my 
mighty weapon So I calm lightly step into the castle Satchel, tackled, wrestled Down the corridor where I'm grounded through the floor Roundhouse into my core, down, out and through the door Sword, down at my side, I gotta round up and ride Face boss, break jaws till I take off Face off, stop and swing my serious strike This is it, take the title, disappear in the night To the whole wide world Got the keys to the kingdom overseas With the wisdom guarantee that my rhythm hit the Slay the boss in the castle when we cross final battle Then I walk out and travel to the Got the keys to the kingdom overseas With the wisdom guarantee that my rhythm hit the Slay the boss in the castle when we cross final battle Then I walk out and travel to the Wide world Whole wide